Hey everybody, Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. Hey, you ever want to do deep cuts on Sting songs and figure out what the heck is that Brit squealing about? Well, had a caller who said, oh, that's the question, do you think economic freedom is a precursor to political and social liberty? And we talked a lot about an example that he brought up, which was um, the Chicago gang of free market economists who worked under the military dictator Pinochet in Chile, to try and uncommunistify the 1,000% inflation disaster bequeathed to them by the previous economic dictator named Allende. And a lot of this gets laid at the feet of Milton Friedman, a bad guy, big, apparently a big fan of military dictatorships and so on. So we unpack all of that and look at some pretty solid leftist tactics for slandering the free market and why you've heard so much about Chile and so little about, I don't know, all of the horrors of communism as a whole. Second caller, is it naive for me, he says, to think that I could have a strong, healthy, lasting relationship with a Christian woman? Well, in my continuing evolution of, I don't know, seeing some of the finer and better aspects of Christianity, we had a good chat about that. Number three question from a caller, how can I determine my sexual market value? Question, are you sitting down? Look down. Did you poke yourself in the eye with your penis? That might be a hint, but we actually go slightly deeper than that. Uh, How can you figure out what is your sexual market value so you don't aim too low or aim too high? Good questions to have. And uh, we also had a fairly robust discussion of the origins of yellow fever. Trust me, you'll find it interesting. So please remember freedomainradio.com slash donate to help out the show. Please sign up for a subscription. Don't let other people pay for what you find valuable. Do the right thing. You know what it is fdrurl.com slash Amazon to use our affiliate link. And with that having been said, let's go south. All right. Well, up first today, we have Michael who wants to know, do you think economic freedom is a precursor to political and social liberty? That's from Michael. Hey, Michael, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing good. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Steph. <laughs> Your question was longer, if I remember it originally. Well, yeah, I was referring to... Uh, Milton Friedman's uh, work that he had done in Chile during the 1970s where he he went down and did a series of lectures and then uh, Pinochet of course and uh, the government at the at that time um, you know uh, began to implement his ideas of of economic freedom Uh, you know which some people would say that the Chilean miracle was or was not uh, uh, attributed to uh, Friedman or not. Uh, some people say yes, some people say no. Uh, but he said it was, you know, Friedman said it was. But the idea was that it eventually led to the democratic uh, government in the 1990s in Chile and, uh, you know, raising uh, Chile economic standards and uh, freedom to where it is now, where it's bubbly, bubbly. Uh, I think it's almost above the economic freedom index above America. I, I'm not sure, but, you know, that, so I, I got to thinking about that. And I thought, you know, oh, is, is that kind of one of the things that holds people back from, you know, uh, having less government in their lives, you know, being um, m- more independent, more, you know, in control of their own lives? So that's kind of the question I've got, you know, as using Chile as an example of that, as I guess. Okay, so let's let's just give people a quick run sure. through the, the Chilean situation for those who aren't particularly aware of it. 
So uh, long-term history will just... <laughs> blow it away and pretend it doesn't exist just because we want to talk about 70s and onwards. So uh, in 1970, a a full-on communist (laughs) pretty much got uh, into into power in in Chile. Uh, This was um, Salvador Allende. (laughs) Allende. (laughs) Allende. And like he was supported by Castro full-on communists. So naturally, of course, all of the leftists who control the media and who control academics and who control, I believe, my grocery cart when the legs wobble, like they all immediately rushed in and said, this is freedom or freedom for my people, the best thing that could ever happen. You know, this is a miracle. This is wonderful and so on. And um, the, the the communist, they call him a socialist, basically a communist. He um you know, he put in massive protectionist barriers. Uh, he um, he nationalized huge numbers, uh, huge amounts of the Chilean uh, economy, the usual nightmare of wage and price controls and everything that went on. And how did it go, my friend? Well, basically, their economic hit bottom. I mean, things like milk and bread were considered luxuries. Uh, they had an inflation rate, uh, I don't know, I think it's like 105%, something, something to that. No, no, it was a thousand percent per year. Okay, okay. A th- you, you're thinking per month. <laughs> yeah, per <laughs> thinking per, it's a thousand percent inflation. Of course, a big a big export because Ayn Rand does her research. A big export from Chile is the copper, and the copper miners, as they did under the socialists in uh, England, uh, the the coal miners, they they had, were on strike like half the time. The economy was literally uh, falling apart. The country was breaking up. Uh, and uh, people were were literally desperate and hungry, and it was the usual communist centrally controlled nightmare. And so this did not go very well for the propaganda merchants on the left, right? No, right. And then that's when uh, Nixon and the CIA became involved, uh, you know, and, and then we have Pinochet and that whole military coup that comes in. Yeah, so so uh, Augustus Pinochet, who was a military leader, and uh, he imposed a basically. I think it's not unfair to call it a military dictatorship. Oh yeah, his his uh, his human rights atrocities were enormous. I, 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 well, okay, listen. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to sound indifferent to this, but all you ever see on the left in Sigourney Weaver movies is just how horrendous. Pinochet was, and there's Sting squealing in his countertenor about the, all the missing people and so on. When you actually look at the death count compared to, say, Soviet Russia, oh, which yeah. the leftists had no problem with whatsoever, compared to Soviet Russia, it was relatively benign. Uh, to, compared to China under Mao, it was relatively benign. So without a doubt, it was a military dictatorship. Where does it rank on the scale of military dictatorships or communist or democide, like the murder of citizens by their own government? Throughout human history, it doesn't even show up in the top 50, I would say. So again, not to diminish the pain and suffering of the Chilean people under this dictatorship, but the left had a huge incentive to massively inflate how bad Augustus Pinochet was, not because he replaced a communist who, during the coup, uh, either was murdered or killed himself, Uh, this was Allende, but they had a huge problem, not so much because Augustus Pinochet took over, like they don't seem to have any, they don't seem to have any problem with military dictatorships coming in, as long as those military dictatorships 
are socialist or leftist or communist, right? They only have a problem. Like, you know how everyone compares Trump to Hitler? Well, no, <laughs> see, if you really if you really want to insult Trump, you've got to compare him to Mao or to Stalin. Have you ever heard anyone on the left who doesn't like Donald Trump comparing him to Chairman Mao or Stalin? No, 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 that's, that, that's really kind of funny. I mean, uh, I forget what the quote is. It says Hitler killed his thousands, but Stalin killed his tens of thousands. To that effect. Oh, yeah. No, you, you, know. you, you, you never ever want to compare because that would remind people about how evil communism is. So you always have to compare, conf, uh, compare bad people to Hitler, who, even though he was in charge of the German National Socialist Workers' Party, is somehow considered on the right. What a great and helpful scale that is. Hey, you know what's really on the left? Communist dictatorships. Hey, you know what's really on the right? Socialist dictatorships. <laughs> Excellent. I think this is going to be helpful. So the left had a huge PR problem in that they were really hoping that things were going to go well. Maybe they were, but they liked the fact that a, a true communist was in power in Chile. And then the, um, yeah, the Americans did help um, overthrow. Uh, they did help fund Pinochet, probably would have done it anyway, but they helped to fund Pinochet to, to overthrow Allende. And uh, Pinochet then, like, the Chilean miracle is not what the free market did. It's the fact that a a guy who's a military warlord was even remotely interested in free market principles. Right, right. Friedman said that. He says the real miracle was the fact that he was listening to Friedman at all. Yeah, yeah Friedman points out the military is top down yeah. and the free market is bottom up, right. right? So I don't know the story of how this all came about, but I do know that um, Friedman, of course, taught – at the um, University of Chicago. And there were a lot of hardcore free market adherents at the University of Chicago. They were called the Chicago Boys. And one of the guys whose PhD was directly supervised by Milton Friedman, who, sorry, just a little shiver of multi-orgasmic free marketness. <laughs> but uh, he was very instrumental and they were they really worked hard to convince Pinochet to abandon the central planning of Allende, the communist, and to let the free market do that funky groove thing that it does so well. Right. And um, he did. Miracle of miracles, there was a significant move towards the free market under Pinochet. Now, again, Pinochet had his human rights abuses, and he had, was a military dictator and so on. Again, I think those have been vastly exaggerated by the left uh, because they have ideological reasons for opposing what happened in Chile, right? Under under the communists, uh, everything was supposed to be milk and, and roses and honey, right? Right. And and, and and yet, things went to shit. Things went to, to the literal out Woodhouse, stuff the economy like some hapless extra in, in Fargo into the wood chipper, stuff the economy in, destroy it completely, uh, and the workers were doing terribly, and the poor were doing terribly, and as you say, milk and bread were luxuries, you had to line up the usual central planning nightmare. And so if the free market guys came in and Chile did well, then the left loses their propaganda war. And so the left had to cover up how bad things were under the communist, and then they had to say, oh my God, look how bad it was when the free market guys came in and took over. Yeah. So yeah, eventually they had this vote in Pinochet where they, you know, he was eventually a yes-no vote where he was taken out in the 1990s, you know. And what, what replaced him? Well – we, we came in, and I'm a little fuzzy on, on what replaced him, um, but what came in is, is the fact that 
you know, the, the economy started growing eventually. It had it had downturns and whatnot, but eventually it came in where, you know, the economy started going again. We had more of a democratic society that came in. Well, he was so that the, the, the argument was that if you let free market reforms right. occur within the country, you create a middle class who wants law and order, you create an intellectual class, you create people who profit, entrepreneurial class who profit and are invested in the continuing freedoms. And once they have their economic freedoms, then they get restless and they want their civil liberties, they want freedom right. of speech, they want freedom of assembly, they want to to overthrow the, the political uh, dictatorship and so on. And the other thing too, you know, let's not forget that the communists did not take very kindly to the displacement of Allende by Pinochet. And so the communists, as they do in their weaselly, horrifying way, were insurgents who were fighting against the um, relatively more free, and certainly with the free market principles implemented by the Chicago boys, more economically free Pinochet. So it wasn't like it was more of a, a war of insurgents than it was that Pinochet would just go around shooting people randomly. So again, this is not to justify it all, but just to place it in perspective. So once people had their economic freedom, then Pinochet gave way to a more liberal kind of democracy. And Chile is one of the most successful turnaround stories from communism to the free market that has ever occurred anywhere, anytime, anywhere in history. They have like the world's second biggest exporter of of salmon. They are, of course, massive exporters of um, fruit. Like this, this love Chile. Ch Chile is why I don't have scurvy in February. I, I just, I love, I love that place. So, so the question, Sorry, the question comes is in Milton Friedman when he was he was ostracized, of course, you know, unrightly so by many people saying you went into this terrible place. You just did your 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 economic freedom you know uh how could you know he basically came across the idea says look they're sick and i'm a doctor and i'm giving them the the cure for their disease so anything i can do to that and he also said he says he believed that economic freedom was a precursor almost to social and political freedom and I, yeah. and that, that kind of got me thinking about a little bit about our own country. And, you know, I kind of left that out of my second question. I got our own country where we have. Which is your own country? Yeah, our, our own, uh, United States here, our own country, you know, where. Because I'm in Canada, but yeah. nonetheless, yes. I'm happy my to talk country, about America. My country. I, I can read my demographics on YouTube. I'm happy to talk my about America. Where we have an incredibly dependent class on social welfare that's very, I want to say, almost impotent is a good word. Uh, to the fact they're almost diseased. It's like they haven't got an understanding, like a sick guy on a bed. Wait, wait, wait. Hang on, hang on, hang on. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let, let, sorry, I, I hate to interrupt you, but, but I just wanted to back up for a second. Because the left, the, the left was in trouble in the 70s because, of course, uh, Khrushchev had already talked about what a cult and evil personality uh, was going on under Stalin. Uh, in in Russia, uh, the 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 horrifying famines and so on that Chairman Mao had uh, ex executed um, in in China, where people were aware of just how bad things were over there. So they and, and people like Milton Friedman were winning like Nobel prizes, and and uh, the, so they were freaking out. Things were not looking good for the left in the seventies. Plus, of course, you know the the um, the Labour Party and and the centrists had been in power for a long time in. Um, in England, and England was an economic basket case. You know, half half my childhood, there was no meat, there was no heat, uh, because uh, everybody was uh, on strike, which of course drove the Thatcher phenomenon and the Reagan phenomenon after the stagflation. That was um, the uh, failure of Keynesian policies in the seventies under Carter, and so the 
the left was kind of freaking out. So they had to find, as the left do, they had to find a scapegoat. And that scapegoat was Milton Friedman. And their example was Chile. However, the fact of the matter is that Milton Friedman was offered two honorary degrees by um, universities in Chile. He rejected them because he did not want people to feel that he was somehow beholden to Chile. The sum total of his interaction with Augustus Pinochet was one meeting that is variously reported as lasting between 30 and 45 minutes. Now, he's good. I don't know that he's 30 to 45 minutes completely convinced a military guy of the perfect values of the free market and have them. He's not that good. No. I mean, nobody's that good. Uh, I'm working on it, but, <laughs> but not yet. <laughs> And so uh, he he never took a penny from the uh, Chilean government. He was never an advisor to the Chilean government. Uh, he he had one very short meeting with Pinochet, which would have you know I mean if if you can convince someone who's a military dictator all the way over to the free market in thirty minutes, you should be running this show, and I will donate to you because that's just a remarkable feat. So they had to pin it on Milton Friedman because. Also, he's white. I mean, he's Jewish. He's white, right? So, so they couldn't pin it on the Chilean people because then they could be called racist. So they they had to pin it on someone, and they pinned it. And Naomi Klein's got a whole book called The Shock Doctrine, which is all about this, which I've read. But um, uh, they had to pin it on someone, and so they pinned it on Milton Friedman, who had almost nothing to do with what happened in Chile. And the fact that Chile is is called the Chilean miracle, that uh, it, it did turn around in a way that Brazil, which is currently going through an unbelievable like million person march semi-revolution. Uh, if you look at Argentina, Argentina up until the 1920s had the same per capita income as America and then went on pretty much close to a century now of disastrous socialist experiments. The evidence keeps crashing into the sandcastles of the leftist delusions and they keep having to wish it away. And so they had to create the disaster story of what happened in Chile. And the way that they did it was they focused on things that – they focused on two things. The first thing they focused on is the pain of the transition because it was considered, look, we've just got to rip that Band-Aid off quickly. We have to um, – we just like everything has to change because what happens, as you know, is that when central planning gets in – what it does is it puts everything in the wrong place. All the capital, all the resources, all the labor, all of the intellectual capital, the fixed capital, the you name it, human capital, it all gets misallocated because central planning is ridiculously inefficient. Now, the transition to the free market is painful. People lose a lot of money. Uh, poor people do badly. There are interruptions in service because it's sort of like if you're addicted to cocaine for 10 years and then you, you go into rehab, you have a terrible time. And so all the cocaine dealers will show you sweating on the floor and throwing up and all kinds of Gary Oldman um, uh, and and the, the actor who played Sid Vicious, not Gary Oldman as the, I don't think he's a drug addict. But anyway, he's a good actor though. But they have to show the, 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 the painful transition in, in the same way that people who want to sell you donuts are going to show you pictures of fat people having a bad time dieting. You know, oh, look how terrible that dieting just makes you sick and it makes you weak and it, it makes you throw up and look at this clip from The Biggest Loser. Here, have a donut, right? And and same way, like the drug dealers, they don't want to say, well, the problem you see was being addicted to this drug for 10 years. They want to say, well, look what happens. These people who claim to really care about you, these people in rehab, you know, they take you off this drug and it's really difficult and it's really unpleasant and it's really horrible. And so even some people die when they get these, like they want to kill you. It's terrible, right? 
And so they, they focus on the transition pain that happens when you are peeling off all of the misallocation of capital and resources from central planning. That's a painful transition. Of course it is. It's really hard to get off cocaine. That's why you don't take it because I, I assume it's a huge amount of fun. But you don't take cocaine because it's highly addictive and getting off it is really, really – and it's expensive and, and it's really unpleasant to, to get off it. So, of course, take, get, getting out of central planning and going to a free market is really brutal and people have a horrible time. That's why you should not have central planning because quitting it is really, really, really tough. But that's not what the leftists say. The leftists say there will, and this, you see this with Donald Trump too. Like Donald Trump is divisive. It's like, nope, those divisions are already there. He's just naming them. Naming them is not magic. He's got his fingers uh, on the bandaid. Yeah, I mean, it's it's you know it's it, you know when, when there's huge conflicts in society, but they're all buried and covered up. You know, like uh, I don't know, a bunch of Pakistani men raping thousands of British women in, in Rathasham and the police cover it up and then someone comes along and blows the lid wide they say they did not create the rapes in fact the rapes were created and continued by the police covering it up so it's all the people covering it up who are actually really extending and inflaming the conflict not the people who point out that there is in fact a conflict so when the free market people come in there's a lot of changes and some people suffer a lot fortunes are made fortunes are lost um, and, and people uh, lose their houses and people lose their maids and it's it's brutal, and that's why you shouldn't have central planning because the transition to the free market is painful. And the longer it goes on, and and to to the credit of Chile, even though it was not exactly a free market before, at least Allende was only in for a few years, taking his wrecking ball to the foundations of the Chilean economy. So they will constantly talk about this. They'll focus on how difficult it is for some people when the free market comes along, which is truly – it's like saying nobody should quit any addictive substance because quitting is tough. And, you know, boy, if that rapist doesn't get to go out and rape someone, he's really unhappy. <laughs> like, good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, it's better than him raping. So they, that's the first thing they do is simply focus on the negative aspects, the negative short-term aspects. They focus on everyone who's suffering from the transition. Oh, there was this – look at this because they cut a lot of regulations, right, in, in Chile. And they go, oh, this, this, this guy used to have – this wonderful position in Screw the Taxpayer Regulatory Agency 101, and now he he's walking the streets, he's looking for, you know how like when the Nazis lost, everybody was like, this Nazi used to have a wonderful job at a concentration camp, he had benefits, he had, his, his children were happy, he could bring home toys. And now he's wandering the streets and he, like, of course, never right, because they don't, it's all manipulation. So, they focus on the short-term negatives of the transition to a free market economy. It's number one. Number two, <clears throat> somebody, number two, which I can say a lot easier and quicker, is they focus on the brutal tactics of Augustus Pinochet, the military dictator, and they ascribe the tactics of the military dictator somehow to Milton Friedman or to the free market or to capitalism, like as if that has anything to do with the other. So, yeah, focus on the short-term pain while you transition to a free market and focus on the brutal economic uh, the brutal military dictator who is fighting against the counterinsurgency run by evil communists. And you say, well, somehow the free market is responsible for 
the human rights violations of the military dictator who is allowing some aspects of the free market to flourish in his society. And it, it's so illa- it's so illogical and so irrational, but, you know, you, you repeat a lie often enough and, and people find it credible. Yeah. So my question is, is um, you know, I understand your opinion. Before people can begin to even experience any sort of liberty in their life, political freedom, political liberty, do you think economic uh, freedom has to come first. I mean, that's that's my big question. Well, I know we have to go right. through this detox, <laughs> as it were, as you explained, you know, the Band-Aid ripping off before the rest of it comes. I mean, are we kind of setting ourselves up for the big detox? You know what I'm saying? I bet, All right. I mean, okay. Just okay. Hang on. Hang on. No, no, sorry. Go, go ahead. I'll, I'll, I had a long speech, so please go ahead no, and I'll, I'll like, keep I get my... This, I, I, look at, I look at I look at the United States, look at the culture. I mean, we've... I feel like I, I look at people and I'm kind of like, oh, my God, it's like a, a bunch of, uh, you know, dope heads walking around saying, please feed me. Where's the next nipple? You know, uh, and, you know, meanwhile, you got somebody like Trump and other people going, hey, look, you know, we're in a bubble. We got to cut this out. We, we can't just continue this onslaught of, you know, borrow more money, you know, print more money, make more money, raising, you know. All this this economic bubble thing, and Friedman saying, "Look, hey, you know, before we got to have economic freedom, before we go to actual having liber- you know, a, 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 a more freer government, more freer society." I understand. I get what you're saying. You know, where where we're saying, okay, look, we're going to come off this drug addiction. You know, I, I'm looking at this. I'm like, okay, this stuff's coming along, and there's this in the back of my mind going, okay, are we getting ready for the great big detox? Because, you know, you got a lot of people screaming, no, not my job, not my job, you know, contested convention, not my job. Okay. So I'm like, I'm thinking, okay, is Friedman got it right here, you know, where, gee golly, you know, we're going to have to go through this process, come what may, in order to get from point A to point B, you know, uh, that's, okay, what process are you talking about, talking about You mean the, the Chilean style basically process? Basically, we're going to have to basically get people used to the idea of being – less dependent upon government subsidies. We're going to get a, less of a status idea, status-controlled economics. Uh, we have it now where, you know, in the United States, I mean, uh, we're so dependent on uh, government control. I mean, people aren't even aware of it. I mean, your government-controlled education, you know, your uh, the the welfare system, the it just goes on and on and on and on. People almost consider it, you know, social... Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, I think it's like what, 40, I think 41, 42% of, of the United States economy goes to either Social Security or Medicare, you know. Well, and, and 70% yeah. of the American population gets significantly more out of the government that they pay in taxes. So I'm thinking, you know, hey, this looks to me, you know, I look at this and I go, gosh, we got an incredibly dependent, enslaved society that is wanting to, willing to elect into positions of power uh, those kinds of people that are willing to keep the gravy train going. You know, they're not wanting to, to stop it. And I'm like, is there somebody, is there something going to have to come along where it's going to, hey, you know, we're breaking this off. We're going to have you guys making your own money, having a job creation. We're going to have a place where you are free from the government so that you will stop wanting to vote people in and and who are are wanting to control your lives because if you're dependent for, on your subsistence to a government you're not going to want to 
voted out, you're going to say, I need to have you, uh, you know, still in, in positions of power. Um, and that's kind of the question is like, I got is like, okay, so do we have to have a society, a world in my country, especially in the United States, we have to have a, a situation where economic freedom is going to have to come first before people say, okay, I've had enough of these people, uh, the government intruding in my life and every other uh, asset and aspect of my life. So that's the kind of question I'm thinking about, you know. Okay, or, okay. So let me let me see if I can respond because you, you keep piling up particular things that I, I want to respond to. So for, first of all, for the left – Let's say that some free market reforms required the strong hand of a military dictator to implement. Let's just say. But for the left to say they have a problem with the implementation of an economic system requiring violence is so laughable that it would be funny if you weren't – if the left wasn't literally drowning in human blood from the implementation of leftist schemes throughout history. I mean, if the left says, oh, you know, Pinochet was a, it was heavy-handed implementation of, of market reforms, it's like, yeah, you know what else might have, can be considered that? Fucking communism. You know, how many times did communism come in? Nice and peaceful. How many times did it slaughter the Romanov family and kill 10 million kulaks and kill, you know, what is it, uh, 90 million people, 70 million people got murdered in Russia alone? I mean, the idea that with the left getting all kinds of blanched why hysterical, poor clutching fall on the couch. Oh, my, I need my smelling salts. I can't believe it. There's actually some, some aggression and violence in the implementation of political reforms. Like, communism was like a brutal combine harvester that cut down human lives like wheat to get to its goals. And so the idea that there was a strong-armed man or dictator in Chile who may have shepherded along some free market reforms – the fact that the left would complain about that without pointing to the millions of times more people who were killed under leftist regimes just shows you how goddamn partisan, false, lying, and manipulative the left is in general. So I just wanted to mention that. Secondly, in general, I think that it's very hard to implement free market reforms without aggression. And, I, you know, I don't say that lightly. I'm just I'm telling you what I think, and this is outside the sort of ideal non-aggression principle situation. We're kind of in a state of nature with this stuff. But, you know, Donald Trump gets in, and I, I said this all about Ron Paul as well, but Donald Trump gets in. Let's say that he wants to close government departments. Let's say he wants to simplify the tax code. Let's say that he wants to cut regulations. Let, like he wants, like all the things that he says that he wants to do. Um, well, how do you think? The government workers are going, and the people dependent on government largesse, how are they going to respond? They're going to freak out. They're going to block traffic, right? I mean, you, you try cutting you try cutting farmer subsidies in Canada, and they'll take all their trailers, and they'll drive at three miles an hour down the highway, destroying the economic movement of the nation. And what do you do? I think that's one of the probably the, you know, on the side, that's one of the things that I'm, I'm probably watching and, and, and getting the biggest kick out of. Is watching Donald Trump really upset the right and the left and the media all at the same time. I mean, uh, I'll be honest with you, uh, I haven't voted uh, for the Republican Party since Reagan. Okay, that's how long it's been. And when Donald Trump showed up, I go like, oh, okay, I'm watching this guy because he's very interesting. You know, uh, watching what's going on, not so much him as much as the reaction from the far left, from the far right. From the media, they're all screaming. Okay, my God, no, my dude, God, my dude, job. Sorry, I got to interrupt you because yeah. we're going off on some other yeah, tangent. We are. We are. 
Do you think that Donald Trump is going to, or any, if Ron Paul had got into power, yeah. do you think that they would be able to implement implement their free market reforms without ever having to call out the National Guard? <laughs> I don't know. I, 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 in my hope of hopes, I hope they wouldn't. But in reality, I think you're probably true. They put the National Guard because people are like totally wigging out. Because you're talking, they're very, they're they're knee deep within the blood, you know, and I doubt very much they want to get out, you know. And the people who are dependent on on welfare, and I'm I'm thinking specifically about the inner cities, uh, some of the black populations, although it may happen among the white population as well, the Hispanic population. What is the black population in America going to do if there are reforms in these areas? Riot. If, if, If welfare is cut significantly. Riot. Scream, yell, yeah. riot, throw a fit, burn cars, right. things like and that. And what do you do if you are responsible for law and order and you're responsible for keeping the peace? What do you do with rioters? You constrain them. You call the National Guard. You try to keep a hold on it. Or you'd be like Obama and identify with it. But, you know, I mean, yeah, you try to keep a hold of it. Uh, right. You you have to stop the riot. Right. Because as I argued recently, if you look at the city of Detroit, once the richest per capita income city in America, now one of the poorest and completely in right. the in the in the hole, in debt, the whole city has been destroyed because of the black riots in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Now, how good has that been for the white, the black, the Asian, the Hispanic, the, any population, any Goddamn bipeds, how are they doing in Detroit? Because nobody put down the riots. It's, uh, oh, well, we don't want to violate them. No, this this is the result. You have destroyed an entire city, and you have a massively dependent population who now have to go out with baseball bats to beat back the wild, feral dogs currently roaming Detroit like it's some John Carter on Mars scenario. I mean, it's it's like it's like Hyperborea out there. It's like Iranistan and the Sumerians. Like it's like something out of Robert E. Howard before he killed himself because his mom died. The tough guy. But um, this is uh, monstrous. So how are you going to deal with it? Well, the one thing that's true is that um, if you let people riot, it will escalate until you end up with a full-on post-Rodney King, thousands of injuries. Tens of billions of dollars of damage destroy the economics uh, of the city, like what happened after the Rodney King acquittals uh, in Los Angeles, or you end up with Ferguson, or you end up, you know, these right. these places where this stuff happens, and the taxpayers leave, and the economy dies, and uh, it just it goes from worse to worse. Or you put down the riot. This is sort of the argument that um, uh, Rudy Giuliani, the, the mayor, said. It's like, no, you have to put down the riot, because if you let it spread— it's like gangrene. It spreads until you die. You have to put down the riot. Now, uh, Ronald Reagan was willing to do that. Rudy Giuliani was willing to do that with his tough on crime measures and so on. And so I am not, you know, I'm not a big fan of politics or political action as a whole, but I can, you know, you don't need to, to be a weatherman to know that it's raining outside, as right. the saying goes, right? right? And so it's very, very clear that if you are going to cut government spending, if you're going to cut government benefits, if you're going to cut regulations, if you're going to, um, you know, cut uh, what you're going to be paying in public sector pensions, what is going to happen is people are going to get really angry, really upset, and particularly the lower IQ population are going to riot. And you're either going to let the riot destroy entire cities 
literally forever. It's not like you burn it and then, oh, it just goes back to normal. Did Detroit ever go back to normal? It never, ever, ever did. And so you either let this, the rot of rioting <clears throat> destroy the entire city forever or with a firm hand, right, you, you, you do whatever is necessary to put down the riots. And the one thing that's true is that if you let rioters riot, then the criminal element will take over in the city and destroy it forever. But if you don't let rioters riot, they go home. That has been shown, oh, like it's about all the way back to Napoleon's whiff of grape shot, that if you, uh, if you use decisive force to end a riot, everyone goes home and the city survives and may in fact flourish. But if you let the rioters riot, it's fall of Rome time. So, I, I, you know, the degree to which you could have implemented these free market reforms in the absence of of a strong man at the top? I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I mean, if you look at the founding of America, well, there was more than a whiff of grape shot. There was an entire war, yeah. a revolutionary war that was fought against the British in order to allow Washington to um, impose a whiskey tax on Pennsylvania. But anyway, it's a topic for another time. Yeah, yeah. But uh, so I don't know. I don't know. I, because, if you know, I've spent 30 years uh, or more talking to people and trying to reason them into, into living better lives and doing better things. And I've spent 10 years on the internet doing it. I've got accumulated a huge amount of experience in this. And because of feedback and emails and comments, I have more information than just about any philosopher in history as to the effect of throwing the rock into the pond. Well, what are the ripples? What are the, what's the blowback? What's the feedback? I'm in a unique position in the history of philosophy to, to know the effects of what it is that I'm doing. And um, I would say that it is not looking good for <laughs> rational change. It is not looking good for hey, rational change. I, I understand human human beings. I tend to agree with you. I'm, I'm perhaps I'm trying not to be as pessimistic. You know, maybe more hopeful. Maybe uh, you know, being older on the older those side of that thing. Those, listen, those are girly, meaningless terms. Yeah, pessimistic. Well, hopeful. pessimistic. In other words. We must I, be empirical. Like we must be realistic. I'm older, you know, so it's like okay, out night, out now, economic collapse and riding in the streets doesn't bode well with me. I mean, you know. Uh, oh no, no, no! Listen, no. hang on, hang on. I didn't say anything about economic collapse. Okay. I didn't say anything about economic collapse. That the, you know, the economic collapse happens if the rioters win. Right. If you want to turn America into Detroit, let the rioters do their thing and drive out the taxpayers. And, and, and even if people can't leave the country, they'll just go galt. They'll just work a bare minimum. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like I was uh, talking to a friend of mine today, got a windfall. The government took 60% of it. 60% of it. And he's like, oh, yeah, really, really worth working hard for that now, wasn't it? <laughs> And that doesn't even count the 13 or 14% tax on everything you buy, the, pro the property tax, the taxes embedded into – it's insane. So what you're really saying – what you're really, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. But you're, what you're really yeah. saying basically is you're going to need a strong hand within the government to control the rioting or the, re the rebellion, as it were, against the economic reform because people are being cut off. Uh, well, people are going to – like yeah. they've been trained since the 1960s that rioting works. Right. Because people don't want to uh, see the strong hand that may be necessary to contain or push back rioting. 
because I don't know, is it women? Is I just is it people just ah, you know? Well, I mean, but, I mean, in our so, in my country, you can scream racist, and the political class, you know, cowers in the corner, you know, nursing sucking their thumb. So I don't, I, I don't know if we have uh, a government system system that can actually, you know, stand up to something like this. I mean, I, in my lifetime, I've never really seen much of it. You know what I'm saying? Uh, the the media screams, "You're bad." And they run over there and hide. Yes, I am. I'm sorry. Let me genuflect right before you. You know, um, so I, I don't know. You know, maybe not. I, you know, maybe the writers no, I mean, will win. I don't. I'm, you know, desperately not optimistic, but I'm, I'm desperately committed to reason and evidence winning the day. Yeah. And uh, that's, of course, what I do the show for, why I have these conversations. So I am very much for if we can have a rational conversation based on reason and evidence, then we don't need – then violence doesn't become inevitable, right? Violence is what happens when uh, people have abandoned reason as the arbiter of their disputes. Then it becomes win-lose. It becomes, you know, two carpets running into each other. One has to buckle under, uh, and it's usually violent in its methodology or its implementation. And so, you know, like we did a whole presentation called The Death of Reason, where you can see all of the evidence as to why people don't listen to reason. But I will still, to my dying breath, I will continue to yawp the virtues of reason and evidence and facts to a world, whether it wants to listen or not. Because I know, I know, I know what the alternative is. And the alternative to reason and evidence is violence. Because people have got to get shit done in the world. They've got to make decisions in society. And either people are going to listen to reason and evidence as the foundation and basis for making those decisions, or they're going to reach for their gun. There's no other choice. There's no third way. It is violence or reason. That's it. So yes, I am committed to spreading reason as best as I can, but um, I am not, you know, <clears throat> now I know all of the IQ stuff, now I know all the cultural stuff, now I know uh, all of the degree to which people mask naked, greedy, exploitive economic self-interest in the guise of helping the poor or charity or whatever, right? It's People are committed and they want something for nothing, which is the foundational motivation of all evil is the desire for the unearned. And uh, a free market will benefit a lot of people. It will even benefit the people currently sucking off the government teat in the long run. But it's going to be a very difficult transition because now, unlike Chile, which only had a couple of years of heavily socialist central planning, the U.S. has had 100 years of central banking, central planning, uh, and an ever-escalating government control over the economy. So, yeah, taking that Band-Aid is going to take half your arm off with it. And it's, <laughs> yeah. it sucks, but that's why we should never have goddamn well done it in the first place. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I can see that. I can see that point. I mean, it, I, you know, I, I'm like you. I, I use logic and reason all the time. Uh, you know, I've got three kids. I sit there and have debates with them all the time about logic and reason. You know, they're adults now. But... Uh, well, I, I don't know, Stefan. To be honest with you, I look at it and I kind of like, I uh, shake my head. And I'm going, oh, my God. You know, because, uh, you know, I, I watch these people out here and they just kind of, I don't know, just, just I guess you just sit, sit down and just hold on to it, I guess, and, and do the best you can in your own little world, you know. And well, I, I think, though, that we need to prepare people for the fact that the addiction to the unearned has yeah. gone on for so long that the withdrawal is going to be very painful. Because, you know, what, you know, idiots are going to say, oh, look, 
some libertarian-ish or conservative guy, look, some conservative guy has gotten into power, and now look, there's all this violence. And idiots are going to say, well, if we if we had never tried to change the system, if we'd never tried to give some money back to the makers and and maybe lower some of the predation of the takers, well, everything would have been great. It's Everything was relatively good until this guy came along, and now look, there's all this conflict, and just idiots are going to say that, which is why I think we need to be blunt and say, look, people have, for two generations or more, have been trained into rioting works, and, uh, you know, it's going to take a... Uh, a uh, uh, a, a certain amount of firmness to convince yeah. people that rioting isn't going to work. Yeah, I, I can see that. I can see that. You know, it's. I'm hopeful. Maybe I don't know. Trying the best I can. You know. All right. Well, I'm going to move on to the next caller, but I really appreciate the call. It was really enjoyable, and um, uh, thanks for calling in. You bet. All right. Well, up next, we have Andrew. Andrew wrote in and said, I'm now attending a private Christian university studying theater. I was hesitant at first to go to a school where the majority of students and faculty fundamentally disagree with me about religion, but I found that everyone I talk to here is quite accepting and open-minded, and that I really enjoy being around Christians for the most part, at least these kinds of Christians. As a 19-year-old heterosexual male who loves kids and eventually wants to get married and raise some of my own, I started thinking about what type of woman I want to pursue a relationship with, and I've met several girls here who I consider extremely virtuous, caring, intelligent, and overall delightful people. However, almost all of them are Christians. Is it naive of me to think that I could have strong, healthy, lasting relationship with a Christian woman? Am I in the completely wrong place to find a good future spouse? Normally, this is something I would ask many of the adult friends I have, but once again, most of them are Christians. I feel as if I'm at a difficult crossroads. That's from Andrew, who I'm assuming is an atheist. Yes, that's correct. Right. Right. Well, hey, Andrew, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. So, Christian girls. That's right. Is there anything you wanted to, uh, to add to this equation? The only thing I think I would add is that since I typed that question, I did meet for lunch with uh, my uncle, who's about 40, and, his, and, our, and our mutual friend, Lee, uh, who is, uh, who's, I, I guess, same age. And they're both married to Christian women, and they're both atheists. And I guess they're pretty much the only uh, atheist adult friends I have. I guess I know some, some atheists, but uh, they're mostly, you know, closer to my age. And they, they both kind of said, you know, there are obviously obstacles, but we make it work. And, um, and, and they, they, they basically said that if I have a good relationship with someone, I shouldn't let that one factor sway me from pursuing a relationship with someone potentially. So that's the only thing I would add. Well, I, um, I thought about marrying a Christian woman. I actually remember that was a you talked about that in one of your videos, and yeah, and the the thing that stopped you was uh, the discussion about kids. Yeah, I mean, very briefly, this is a woman we we never actually really dated, but uh, I liked her a lot. A very smart um, woman and um, an excellent writer. <laughs> but anyway, uh, and um, a good friend and. 
It's interesting because in her family, it was the same kind of setup, that her mother was religious and her father was an atheist. And, you know, when we talked about sort of a future together, she basically made the same offer, you know, which is, you know, my dad, uh, my dad sleeps in yeah. <laughs> when we go to church, right? Uh-huh. And so I, you know, I was certainly willing to consider it because the, she, she had a, a, a lot of wonderful qualities. And yeah. my, you know, my perspective, as you've heard, was I don't mind if you're religious because you have a lot of wonderful qualities. And I'm certainly not perfect, so uh, that's fine. But when it comes to kids the kids have to be able to choose when they become adults, whether they follow religion or non-religion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, and, and she was, no, she, that was, that was a deal breaker for her. And therefore it was a deal breaker for me because, uh, um, children, I, I don't, I didn't see how it could work with children being told things were true that I didn't live by and they were true and virtuous that I didn't live by such as, you know, worship of or praying or adherence to, to, God's dictates and so on. I just I couldn't see I, I couldn't see how that was going to work out. Fill down your and spine like oh I don't want that happening. Yeah, I, I, you know, and it was um, it was a shame, you know, and and in a way, I respected her more for that. Mm-hmm. You know, in that she was willing to be the replicator for religious ideals. She didn't need me to be anything other than a provider and a good father, if that makes sense. Right, right. Well, you know, the, so else, there was strength and weakness in her position. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, there's a something else that I've noticed about Christian women, for the most, at least Christian women that I'm around, is that if you marry a Christian woman, you're not just marrying the woman. You've got a, a community that's going to help with a lot of things that are, you know, I consider really, really valuable. That, and, and they were valuable for me growing up. Such as you know, friends uh, of the of the uh, of of you and your spouse who have kids about the same age, and they're going to su- provide support. And you know, you have especially with your church life, um, there's there's regular social interaction. You learn um, you know loyalty, and there's there's a lot of great things that come along with at least most of the Christian women that I'm around here at school. Oh yeah, like a a friend of mine whose father got really ill. I mean, this this is going to sound a bit harsh, but it's from the movie. I think it's called As Good as It Gets with Jack Nicholson, where spoiler, it's an old movie, but a, a a gay guy played by Greg Kinnear, a gay guy gets beaten up and and Jack Nicholson comes basically over and his guy's all alone and he's really beaten up badly and he's like, "Where are all your faggot friends now?" <laughs> You know, in that, oh, this guy needs help now. And, and, you know, if you ever want to know whether you have real friends, all you have to do is be of negative utility to them for a while. Oh, yeah. And I, I don't know any group of people who is more willing to help out in times of crisis than Christians. Oh, yeah. So my, my friend's father got ill. And the, the Christians were the ones who stepped up to help the family. He was an atheist for most of his life. But the Christians came by with food, they came by to help, they shuffled the driveway, they did all of the, sounds little, but they're huge when you're not well. Yeah, absolutely. 
And it's not like the opposite of Christianity is rationality. I mean, we've all seen the leftist, lunatic, social justice warriors, patriarchy-hating, cisgender scum-hunting lefties who are atheists and insane. And they just <laughs> so it's not like a lot it's not like the opposite of Christianity is philosophy. <laughs> the opposite of Christianity is like unhinged hatred for the narcissism of minor differences. Right, and a lot of people replace one god with another god. They just don't call it god. It's just you know other things that I can irrationally stand for and put my No, no, no. The people people replace god with cowardice and conformity in general. Right? Because because with with god you have a personal relationship, you speak, you you get I mean, as you know my argument is which I talk about in uh, against the gods that god is actually the unconscious and when you are asking questions of God, you are dropping bottles into your unconscious, which get scribbled in and thrown back up. So I, I think that there is great value uh, in, in prayer, insofar as prayer is a methodology of acquiring self-knowledge. It's not God who's answering, so your unconscious is answering and so on. So there's a lot of value in that. But the reality is that you are responsible for for following God's plan and God's commandments and so on. And that can sometimes put you very much at odds with regards to conformity. Now, I know that there's a lot of conformity in religion and so on, but but nonetheless, what I find with um, the people who have left religion behind is that they no longer have a belief system that requires any courage or sacrifice. Exactly. That that gives them any energy to push back. Like, you know, it's like somebody who says, I'm against racism. It's like, oh my God. Like, talk about shutting the barn door after the horse has left. You know, after the civil rights movement, there are no racist laws left in America, at least not any that are pro-white. There are a lot of pro-minority racist laws, affirmative action and so on. But but being an anti it's like, I'm against slavery. You are not a moral hero. <laughs> that fight is... Way- so I don't know the degree to which... People on the left push back against their own particular rolling prejudices. A few do. Uh, Bill Maher, you know, talks about the dangers and the intolerance of of Islam and and will take on those on the left uh, about that. But that's kind of like an exception. Like people on the left should have been all over the Bernie Sanders supporters who shut down the Trump rally because that's a clear violation of the First Amendment. That's a clear violation of the private property that has rented out these halls. You know, you uh, you are not allowed. I mean, your phone goes off in a movie theater. You can get kicked out. And people don't say, the movie theaters are prejudicial scum who hate people who have cell phones who forget to turn them off. You get thrown out of a movie theater for a cell phone going off. You get thrown out of a lecture in a university for a cell phone going off. But you apparently... Apparently, if you stand and screech like a diseased, wounded harpy at a Donald Trump rally, which people have driven hundreds of miles or thousands of miles to get to, who've been looking forward to it, who have maybe paid a lot of money to come there, you can stand and screech for 10 minutes at a Donald Trump rally, and anyone who removes you is somehow violent and aggressive. Yeah, try that. Try that. Try going to the Met. Uh, to the opera and singing along at the top of your lungs and see how well that goes. Or try just setting off an air horn at a at a at, at cats. Well, first of all, you generally can't tell the air horn if it's high pitched from the song Memories. But try doing this anywhere. Try going to somebody's house and urinating floridly into their pool. 
oh no, they threw me out. They must hate people who have bladders. It's like, no, you're just being an offensive dick and you have to leave. Try that anywhere on private property, really interrupting people's uh, enjoyment. You know, try, try going to a disco and uh, setting up your own music and cranking it really, really loud, they'll say, sorry, you're really interfering with things. You have to leave. And if you don't, they'll call their security guard and the guy with no neck will put you out on your head. And so this um, this conformity that happens, people on the left should have said, look, that that's not fair. You know, these people are happy. They don't come disrupt our debates. Uh, and you simply can't go and disrupt their debates, right? This needs to be a conversation, right? And the fact that all these uh, lunatics, I guess, uh, leftover, burned out <laughs> Bernie Sanders rejects from the Occupy Wall Street movement and now going to plan to spend a, a, a spring, uh, I guess, decidedly not working, but instead going around disrupting Donald Trump rallies, the left should be all over that. But they don't. They don't do that uh, because they are... Um, well, the left has no values, no honor, no ethics, no virtue. They simply rely on other people having those things so they can torture them until they get conformity. And so this, uh, the opposite of, of Christianity is not rational, independent thought. I mean, didn't the social justice warriors drive, pretty much drive Richard Dawkins into having a stroke recently? Like he was uninvited from some atheist conference because of some I don't know, he made some criticisms about feminism or something, and, you know, guy had a stroke. Well, that's not exactly rational debate. You know, try being Warren Farrell or Ann Coulter talking in Toronto, and you'll have a pretty short speech if the social justice warriors have their day. Try, try being Ben Shapiro speaking somewhere, or try being Milo Yiannopoulos speaking somewhere. They're not interested <clears throat> in any kind of rational debate. They just want to come out there and, and scream at you until you reasonably have to act against them, at which point they can try victimhood and persecution and all the usual leftist bullshit. And so I don't know, like if I look at the opposite of Christianity, I find it far worse, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah. Or at least at least what in our in our culture, the opposite of Christianity has become, you know, it's people are really good at realizing that the Westboro Baptist Church are really, you know, untasteful for for picketing a rally and then you know that's that's that kind of seems to be like the exact same thing that's happening across the the country you know right so if i had a choice between a leftist and a christian woman I'm going to tell you that I think there's quite a bit less penis wear and tear on the Christian ladies, which statistically gives you a far better chance of a successful marriage. Just because um, that, that phrase in my head, it's just going to come up every time any I get any kind of red flag. That phrase, penis wear and tear, is just going to go off in my head. So, Oh, yeah. No, listen. If, if you want to understand how penises, particularly, you know, multiple cock carousel penises affect women, think of a lovely picture and the penis as an eraser being dragged back and forth on it. Uh, it, it, it excessive penis exposure is toxic uh, for women. Uh, it is a kind of drug that is really bad uh, for them. And so, you know, one of the things that you're much more likely to get with a Christian woman is considerably less Johnson mileage. And uh, as far as that goes, it's a dose-dependent thing in terms of 
you know, the old thing that you can't tour, you, you simply cannot turn a whore into a housewife. It's the fantasy that, that lots of men have because they imagine that they can get a nice meal and uh, all the, you know, crazy staircase sex that they can imagine. But um, you simply can't uh, do it. And statistically, you know, the more partners a woman has, the more likely you are to get divorced. Now, divorce for men uh, you know, as the old thing is like having your wallet pulled out by your, through your penis, I think as uh, Robin Williams said, and he had some good reason to uh, to say it. And <clears throat> so anything that you can do to avoid getting divorced, which is like inviting the state in, uh, you know, to give you a, um, a black and dactyl style proctological exam that never ends, anything you can do to avoid getting divorced is great. And certainly some social justice warrior feminist um, is very likely, I would argue, to use the state to bludgeon your balls into submission and to turn you into your average, uh, I don't know, cock-enabled, spineless, broken man, which you really, really want to avoid. And so um, I guess if you if you look at women as a an airstrip, <laughs> if you look at women as an airstrip and you got to land your plane of marriage, you don't want a whole other bunch of Cessnas and helicopters already on the runway. And so even if the woman doesn't has not contracted, you know, the kind of uh, STDs that turn your nose into a tentacle, uh, then she's she's uh, sold herself cheaply on the sexual marketplace, value marketplace, and uh, it's um, it, it doesn't look good for long-term stability and um, uh, basic self-respect. And also I would say in general that – the women who've had a lot of sex when they're young don't have good relationships with their fathers. You know, there's this old, you know, there was this meme that flew around years ago. I guess it got made into a sitcom with the late John Ritter. You know, eight rules for dating my teenage daughter or something like that. You know, there's that old thing where you go up to pick up the girl and, and the man is sitting there. I'm just cleaning my gun. No particular reason, but I, I'd also appreciate it if you took Real nice care of my little girl. Get her home by, say, 9.30. And if she's walking like John Wayne just having been thrown off a heifer, well, I'll have been cleaning my gun for a pretty good reason, son. Like, everyone's got to run the gauntlet of the dad. And the dad keeps the hairy-legged trash men away from the eggs of his daughter. Yeah. And so a woman who's, like, running around, uh, you know, basically grabbing cock like a woman training for a javelin contest... She is uh, no good relationship with her dad, which means that she's raised by a single mom, which means that her mom hates men, which means that's going to infect her. And you really are, you know, sticking your dick into a pencil sharpener and, uh, you know, having uh, O.J. Simpson crank the handle. Man, these these images are just coming right after the other, and they're really inspiring me. Uh, so thank you for that. It's funny. They're actually just meant to frighten you. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm like the preacher talking about hell uh, in um, – a portrait of the artist as a young man, <laughs> except I'm talking about uh, vaginas with teeth. Vagina dentata, uh, I, I dare say. Uh, you definitely do want to stay away from, you know you know what they say? Um, uh, when I was a kid, they were honest, and they said, used goods, used goods, right? And and then they said, previously owned, like that somehow. And, and now it's like, previously enjoyed. <laughs> it's like, I, I don't want previously enjoyed vagina I, I just don't i don't want it i want i want to i want something that's freshly wrapped i want, you know i want something that not not basically like 
hey, here's some food I found on the sidewalk. Uh, I wonder, it, it's been previously enjoyed. Actually, it just means it's been swallowed and thrown up again. I don't want to eat it. Sorry. And so if you're around the Christian uh, women, right, and I, again, I know there's some uncertain stats about all of this, but among high IQ, high intelligent, high quality Christian women, uh, I think you're more likely to not find that when you have sex, there's some interstate frozen weather pileup of condoms somewhere up there that you're going to have to take out with a shovel. Yeah, that's usually not the case. It's That's so funny that you bring that up because my friend and I uh, here at school, he's a Christian, he, he and I were talking about this and he said, you know, girls here, I've noticed, they actually want to have sex with you more when you say, I don't want to have sex until marriage. That just turns them on, you know, because that's just, that is the moral zeitgeist of Christian communities. And so when you say, you know, I'd rather wait. Then they're just like, oh, that just makes me want that much more. Well, because you're displaying K-selected behavior, right? Right. Of course. Yeah. That was so. So, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I watched that video uh, that, you, that you did, The Truth About Sex. And I and I started I started watching it and I was like, this is, I guess, not where I expected it to go. Not that I had anything in mind, uh, but you but, but the more you got into it i was like oh wow this all kind of rings true to how i was raised and then i was even more fascinated with the 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 people who called in the i guess the couple who called in and did the had criticisms of that video and they had right. and they had kind of a i was kind of at that point uh once in my life because i kind of when i when i realized i i admitted to myself you know what i was raised in this christian environment but i no longer I just can't do this. I can't play this game anymore. I can't say that I believe in these things anymore, which, you know, a part of what I, why I was so happy I found your show was that you were say, you, you kind of said, well, you don't have to abandon any kind of solid foundation for principles. And so at one point I was kind of saying to myself, oh, I guess, I, I guess I'm an atheist now. I guess this means I can go. I'm going to, you know, smoke weed while, you know, having sex with some random person that I just met in a bar. But then I was like, wait a second, I have no desire to do that. I have absolutely no desire to do that because, you know, like you say on your peaceful parenting stuff, what you model is what your kids wind up, you know, looking like. And so my parents were always just kind of like, you know, there's there's no nothing good comes of that, of kind of sleeping around in the of a promiscuous lifestyle. So I had no desire for it. And I was in a community where, you know, there weren't a ton of people who did that. And people who did, usually, I kind of saw negative consequences for it. And it wasn't like they were kicked out. It wasn't like they were, like, ostracized. It was kind of like, oh, you know, well, we, we, we don't really do that. Does that make sense? And so I, my initial reaction was, I guess this means if I don't believe in Christianity, I can go wild and, and uh, you know, do all this stuff. But, but, but eventually I kind of I came back. And said, okay, I liked the values that I had, for the most part, of course, but the foundation just wasn't super strong. It, it, you know, faith is not super reliable. But I liked where I was. So I, I had to, I, it's this funny kind of uh, um, pendulum that I've been on. And I'm kind of heading back to where I was before because I'm realizing that the alternative, like you said, isn't really what it promises. And a lot of Christians would say, that's exactly why you should be a Christian is because the alternative is this kind of, you know, wayward, you know, kind of lifestyle, prodigal son lifestyle. Um, but, but I would say 
you know, there aren't a lot of people who come back to those virtues and values and, and put a, put a a rational foundation underneath it, which is what I'm really uh, thankful to your show for doing. Uh, But, but it's just, it's just interesting because the, the kids, the kids thing is what really gets me. What I'm thinking about, you know, obviously I'm, I'm, I'm not quite to that age of, 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 uh, looking to settle down yet, obviously, but just when I think about marrying a Christian, I just, I think it seems like, uh, I just kind of grit my teeth and, and kind of tense up when I think of that. What think of what? Oh, the, the prospect of having to, you know, raise kids with someone who, um, is, is wanting to teach them religion and wanting to teach them that religious doctrines are true. Right. And, and, and it comes, yeah, I mean, so that's, just the more you wanted to add? Because I don't want to... No, 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 that's it. That jump was, in. What, no, that's what, what I was saying. Right. Okay, so um, there's a graphic, and this is um, from, from 2007. Okay. And there are three norms that you need to follow if you want to get to the middle class. I, I, this is not like a trick. I'm just curious if you know what they are. Uh, no, uh, three norms that you have to follow to get to the middle class. No, I've never. Three three things that you have to do if you want to not be um, be poor. I don't know. What are they? Okay. The first one is complete high school. I mean, we're not talking rocket science here, right? Yeah. Number one, complete high school. The second one is... <laughs> I hate to say it. It's so ridiculous. First one is complete high school. Second one is have a job. <laughs> I mean, it's so ridiculous to say, right? Complete high school, work full time, at, yeah, at least for a year. Mm-hmm. And the third one is wait until you're 21 and marry before you have children. Right. Complete high school, get a job, wait until 21 and marry before having children. And a lot now, of people that I know would say that's judgmental. Or that? No, it's not judgmental. It's statistical. Exactly, and that's what I—that's what I would try to say. I, you know, it's—it's it's not judgmental for me to say, if you only eat chocolate cake, your health will not be optimum. <laughs> optimum. Oh, you're against chocolate cake. You're—it's like no. I'm simply stating a fact. So, if you do not conform to either completing high school, working full time, or waiting until twenty-one and marrying before having children, if you do none of that. Don't finish high school, don't get a full-time job, and you have kids, so out of wedlock or before the age of 21, then 76% of people who com- who conform to zero of those norms, 76% of them are poor. Like, less than 100% of the poverty level, right? Right. And 7% of them are in the middle class, which is, the middle class is like more than 300, more than three times the poverty level. Middle class and above. Yeah. So if now, if you only conform to one or two of those norms, then 27% of those people are poor, but 25% of them are middle class and above. Yeah. Now, if you conform to all three of these norms, what percentage of people do you think who conform to three these three norms end up poor? I'm going to say 10%. How low can you go? How low can you go? 5%. It's lower. I feel like Abraham testing God with Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, four. 
It's lower. Three. It's lower, baby. Two. That's correct. If you complete high school, work full-time, wait until the age of 21 and marry before you have children, you only have a 2% likelihood of being poor. You have, on the other hand, a 74% likelihood of being in the middle class and above. So zero norms, 76% of people are poor. These three norms, 74% are in the middle class or above. Yeah. Yeah. So Christianity is going to encourage you to finish high school. Christianity is going to encourage you to get a job, idle hands of the devil's work. Of course, I'm speaking mostly of Protestantism. Uh, and yeah, they're going to say, don't have a child out of wedlock. Well, coincidentally, these three things are necessary to not be poor. And so the idea that the poor are just victims and, oh, the, the capitalists are exploiting them. and they Nonsense. Just do some not stupid things. And you're most likely going to make it to the middle class. This is not an IQ test of, wow, okay, I need you to understand quantum physics and have a job. <laughs> it's, it's only one of those. And uh, it's not a high IQ test, although apparently it is <laughs> for a lot of people. Um, but, uh, but so this, well, I've left religion, so all is permitted. and uh, Right? I mean, this nonsense. Yeah. Yeah, but but that's kind of what I thought as soon as I got out, and and not because anybody, any one individual told me that, just it's just because that's kind of what the the general message coming from the media and coming from the world seems to be. It seems to be you know you're either a conservative Christian, or then you become an atheist, then you become a liberal, and um, and yeah, that's that that's kind of the message that I seem to have received. But then I then I realized, you know, okay, maybe maybe that's not quite true. And I say I've left religion. I still do go to church, and I still, I still, you know, I'm very close with my my religious friends and everything like that. It's just um, I'm kind of I'm kind of the black sheep of the of the congregation. Right. That makes sense. So, I'll tell you something else too. Do you mind if we just wander off the path of philosophy and just go to sheer bullshit speculation land? I love bullshit speculation land. Okay, good. I It, it is my nemesis, but I find it irresistible. I can resist everything except temptation, as the Oscar Wilde quote goes. Okay. So, chicks and God. <laughs> chicks and God. Would you say that, in your experience, more men are into God or more women are into God. I have. This is so. I was just talking about this the other day. Women, I feel like, have a much harder time, le- or leaving the faith. Women are typically more religious. Yeah, women get boners for Jesus. Yeah, because they say, you know, Jesus is my boyfriend, and you know, Jesus is is the romance that I have. You know, I'm in love with Jesus. Don't see too many men saying that. No. Um... <laughs> what is it they say? Steph, I love you. No homo. It's like, Jesus, I love you. No homo. <laughs> Even though Jesus seems to spend a lot of time posing in a loincloth. I'm just saying it's kind of Chippendales. That's that's all I'm saying. It's just it's a lot of not covered up. It's it's like those Hindu goddesses with the nine tits. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, tits are nice. Uh I guess I can go like will I take blue if there are nine? Okay. <laughs> You know, I can, I can, you know, 
I can get into that. I'll even, you know, if there are nine tits, I'll take them blue. I don't even mind if there are some swords whirring around from some of the other arms. And maybe there's an elephant head. I still do get the nine tits, though. So it's exactly. uh, it's a tough call. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's like I'm, I'm imagining like a uh, like a calendar of like Jesus in these seductive poses and his robe is like exposing his flexed pecs. And there's like a Bible verse underneath it. Right. Right, right. I mean, and because he's a young guy, there can be a second coming. Boom, boom. Oh, oh, I can't believe I said that, but I, I can't. So, um, so why do you think that women are more into God than men? Wow, that's a great, that's a great question. I, I have a couple theories. I guess one would be that women around the globe, not necessarily by principle, but just the way things are, are typically more dependent. Like, you know, like a lot of women stay home, like most women throughout the course of history have stayed home and, and raised kids. In, in a recent survey, 84% of American women said they wanted to be housewives. Is that true? Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, I, I, that was higher than I would ever expect. But yeah, so, so that would kind of seem to confirm that like, you know, the idea that women are more dependent. And so the idea of depending on God is more in line with your, your mindset. And men typically like to be more, I'm going to go out into the wilderness alone and create an empire kind of thing. And so then, you know, it can be almost kind of cool to say, I don't need God or, or easier, easier, cooler, maybe for, for men to kind of say, I don't need religion necessarily because men as a whole are more individualistic. Just a thought. Right. I mean, I think there's some truth in that. And of course, we're not in the realm of any kind of objectively provable truth. Now, you you said you're not a dad as yet, right? No, no. Okay. I think that women are to some degree more into God because they are gods. I mean, women make people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, seriously, it's complete. Because as a father, like it's completely insane. Yeah, it's completely insane. Like, what? What was my contribution to this whole thing? <laughs> Bad foreplay, <laughs> ninety seconds, <laughs> and falling asleep where she has to wriggle out from it. Like, my contribution was, you know, like uh, I don't know the kind of stuff that I was just trying to hide throughout my teenage years so that people could actually bend my sheets. Right? It's like. Women, they make life. They make people. Yeah. What goes in is, I don't know, a bit of odd-smelling yogurt stuff, right? That's the matter. Right? But women make life. Yeah. It's like throwing some flour into an oven and out comes a baker. It's like completely – like it's not even a cake. It's a human being. Yeah. And I think that's like the I think the only thing that that can contain that incredible, unbelievable, astonishing power is an affinity for a God who also creates life. Wow, that's a great observation. I did nothing. Yeah, and she made a human being. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I made a podcast this weekend. What did you do? Oh, I made a human being. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? I, I, I compared to. I mean, uh, yeah. What will I ever do in my life compared to making a human being? 
Uh, it's incredible. Yeah, it's like it's like I got I got the I got this frozen pie and I heated it up. <laughs> right, 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 and and out came a dance troupe. It's like what is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like when the kid the kid builds the builds the huge Lego model following the instructions. Like I made this. Yeah, did you? Did you? Mommy, mommy, look what I made. Hi, honey. Look what I made, which is you. <laughs> I mean, your drawing is nice and all that, but can it make another drawing? No, it can't. <laughs> so I'm not fundamentally that impressed. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, so I, I think, I, I like, I this fundamental division between men and women, which is we throw resources and <laughs> sperm at women and they make human beings. That's, I mean, that's so bizarre. You know, like there's this old thing about like this old cliche about the artist who draws a, a person so lifelike that they step off the canvas. You know, that's like, whoa, what a trippy idea. It's like that happens every single minute of the day with human beings falling out of women. Yeah. Yeah. Excuse me while I go produce life. Yeah. You know, I'm really glad you're good at darts. <laughs> I'm going to create an entire human brain out of uh, coffee. I mean, that's incredible. Yeah, yeah. Women are fantastic ways of turning tequila into the next generation. It really is. Totally. A transubstantiation that puts anything in the Catholic Church office entirely to shame. What Victor Frankenstein was trying to do, like, by just sitting on the couch and watching the house. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. So, Dr. Frankenstein, you have to have a PhD, you have to have wild hair, buggy eyes, and be completely insane to do what women can achieve in two and a half minutes. I mean, it's it's madness. Like, you know, it's funny because, you know, when I, was a, when I wrote novels and plays, people are like, oh, you know, your dialogue is really realistic. They're like real people, the people. okay. But they're not real people like a woman can produce. I mean, I just – it's mind-blowing. And, I, you know, I look at it's, – it's a cliche, but it's true. You look at, Just look at your, your kid's eyeballs. Yeah. I have no idea how these crazy light-sensing marbles can do anything sensible with the jumble of outside information that comes spraying their way. No idea. No clue. Why – oh, I think I'm going to just invert everything because faraway stuff is too big and we really want to focus on the tiger that's closest to us or the thing we're hunting. How does these orbs of jelly, how do they do anything useful? I have no idea. And neither do women, but they can make them. Yeah, you know, in a way, women have, have kind of like done better than God because for God to make a woman, he needed a rib. Women leave <laughs> way less than a rib. Right, 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 right. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I think that this power to create life. Now, I, like, I get all of this, and I know, I know what people are going to say because I have a relationship with the planet. And people are going to say, yes, but a man who makes a sculpture has to study for years and women get this power automatically. I get that, which is why their God doesn't have to study anything and just creates life. The God, God doesn't have to, wow, you know, like that old Gary Larson cartoon where he's making stuff out of clay and it's like, wow, these snakes are totally easy. It's like God doesn't have to become good at anything. He just has the power to create life. And this is why there's an argument that all gods are in fact goddesses, that that uh, this capacity to 
uh, create life. I mean, think about, for Christians in particular, for Christians in particular, God still needed an egg. Yeah. Still, he still had to have the very God of Christians still had to be born of woman. And, and, you know, there's this thing in, in fiction, which I've talked about, where women are just amazing at everything without actually having to study it. The Mary Sues uh, that they're called out of some old, uh, I think it's an old Star Trek meme about this woman who's great. Women are fantastic at things without having to study. And it's like, well, yeah. First of all, they pull the best out of men because we're all chasing the golden eggs. And secondly, they, they can make life yeah. by assuming a position <laughs> you know like i mean that's just amazing it, it's it's truly astounding staggering and it's one of the beautiful and glorious magnificent things about women and i think it leaves them to have a little bit of more affinity with a god who can make life without effort without effort a little bit more affinity for divinity <laughs> right 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 yeah, absolutely that's a yeah, i'm totally gonna yeah i'm that's that's definitely that's definitely and what do women say when they're in the very moment of conception? Oh, God. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And you're like, well, you don't have to call me that. I don't know if I'm that good. <laughs> right. But that's because in the moment of conception, they are becoming gods. Yeah. Now, and this is why women have trouble, like, when you go to men and, and you say the state is force, a lot of men will kind of get it. They it certainly did before the draft ended. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they can force me to go shoot people. Oh, yeah, they're pretty much force. I kind of get that, right? And, of course, men were paying the taxes and and women were receiving the protection. Yeah. Right? In the past – you know, the roads and, and, and the police and the sewage system. I mean, the men paid the taxes and the women received all the benefits. Right. And so for women, the government was like, wow, you know, it's great. This is I can drink water without having to boil it. I flush and crap magically goes away. And and, and there's roads and I can pick up the phone and like it works. And like kids have a place to go to school. Like it was all magic benefits, right? Uh-huh. Whereas the men are out there like, holding the, like, shredded remnants of their paycheck after the government dogs have been at it and it's, like, happy to still have four fingers, right? Mm -hmm. And so for, for when, you saw, when you say taxation is force to men, and again, this is a little bit more true in the past, but they're like, yeah. But if you say to women taxation is force, it, it doesn't register nearly as much nearly as deeply, which is why women tend to vote left, because there is um, wonderful, um, wonderful benefits that they get that they don't have to pay for. Yeah, WIC and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and this is why, you know, I, I mentioned this a while back ago, but uh, I was um, with my daughter at a, at a playground and I was listening to these women. And they were single moms, and they were like, well, you know, but if you have another kid, you know, that's not hard to find a guy who'll give you that favor, har, 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 right? And so if you, you know, give all these other um, 
Uh, you give all of these, uh, you know, get another kid and the government's going to give you another $800 and then you get this benefit. And you, they were just going through all the calculus, right? Uh, so they were conscious of it. Oh, the, 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 it doesn't happen by accident that when the government increases benefits, women have more kids. They can count, right? Yeah, totally. And women are not in the business of producing vital civilization-enhancing services, right? So this is the 20 leading occupations of employed women. This is from 2010. This is from the U.S. Department of Labor. Mm -hmm. What do you think is number one? Um, why don't you just tell me and then I, then I can just agree. I was surprised at this because um, I thought that this had kind of gone the way of the, uh, the dodo. But uh, the number one is secretaries and administrative assistants. Now, God knows, where would civilization be without someone to answer the phone? <laughs> They're not inventing phones, right? They're not making the next iPhone. They're secretaries and administrative assistants. Yeah, which is not to say that they couldn't. It's just to say that, that like, that's just the way it is. They just don't. Well, there's, there's two, two reasons. One is that women, uh, women will go into STEM fields if they don't have much choice. But as income tends to go up and economic opportunity tends to go up, they tend to gravitate towards more people interactive occupations. And the, the, but anything where you do a lot of interaction with people is almost by definition not what builds civilization. So, number one, secretaries and administrative assistants. Number two, registered nurses. Now, again, it's nice to have nurses around. Are they responsible for building and furthering civilization in the same way that guys who build sewage systems are? Or electrical grids? Or, you know, no. Right. Elementary, number three, elementary and middle school teachers. Number four, cashiers. Number five, retail salespersons. And then number six, uh, nursing, psychiatric, and home health aides. Number seven, waiters and waitresses, right? Mm. Customer services representatives, maids, receptionists, childcare workers, you know, teachers' assistants, home care aides, office clerks, cooks. These are all fine, you know, they, but they're not – this is not what builds and maintains civilization. This is all stuff which is because there already is a civilization that's built and maintained. You can have these jobs. Right. So, you know, men, men invent and build the civilization stuff. We repair stuff. Uh, women benefit and contribute, but very much as a dependency on all of the stuff that men have built, right? Right. 2% of CEOs are women. Only 6% of CFOs are women. 5% of COOs. White men still own 95% of all of the mainline businesses. Women at the moment are leaving the workforce in record numbers completely. And yeah, a lot of women are going to college. What kind of degrees are they getting? Right. Only 5% of women go into any work that is really serious. Law, medicine, STEM. And even those few women typically only work for a couple of years or work less than men. Right? Female doctors work like 500 hours a year less than men. And so women, glorious, wonderful creatures, but they are not foundational in the making of civilization. They are foundational in making the men who make civilization, but they themselves are not foundational to making civilization. 
Yeah, that makes sense. And also, women, of course, cluster more around the, the middle of the IQ scale. And the higher you go up on the IQ scale, the more likely you are to be an atheist. It's generally IQ and atheism are dose-dependent. They correlate with each other. Yeah. And so the fact that women cluster around the median means that they're more likely to be religious. And um, the other thing, too, is that – and this goes back to your first point, I think, that, that women – are dependent uh, on on other people to provide, like for men, historically, evolutionarily, women had to rely on men to provide the resources because the women would spend like 20 years disabled with childbirth and breastfeeding and childbirth and breastfeeding and rinse and repeat and rinse and repeat. So kind of dependent on men. And so the idea that there's a God that creates everything and provides things for them, it's not, again, way outside. Uh, also, uh, women get their resources more through their behavior with regards to other people as compared to their behavior with regards to reality. That's a bad way of putting it. Let me let me circle back over that roadkill and see if I can bring it back to life. Men, men gain resources by interacting with reality. They got to go hunting. They got to plant crops and all that. Women gain resources by interacting with other people. And that's, you know, maybe that's manipulative. Maybe it's not. But basically, women gain resources by men being attracted to them, which is manipulating people and and getting stuff from people not from reality and women also gain resources by giving and taking within a community usually around the raising of children which again is interacting with people rather than interacting with reality and women have evolved to to deal with in, and get resources and manipulate and and get things from people rather than interacting directly with reality men can't manipulate their way into increasing their sexual market value women can Men have to go out and actually produce resources rather than uh, put on makeup, push up bras, and go to the gym or whatever, right? And so men have a, a necessary foundational pragmatism with regards to reality in that there's no intermediary that they can pray to to get the rabbit to jump magically into the trap. They actually have to go out and hunt the thing. They have to go down uh, and and fight other men. Uh, they, they, there's, they, you know, they can't just pray for things. And the, the praying for things is asking for severe consciousness to provide you with things rather than going out and getting it yourself from reality. That works more with women's evolution because women evolved to get things from people, often through manipulation, rather than going out and getting things directly. Not because women were bad at it, but because they were raising children, right? And then they they, were, they couldn't go out and, and hunt for three days when they have a newborn at home because he'd be dead by the time they got back. So the fact that women like to think of a universe that is populated by consciousness rather than bare empirical reality is perfectly valid to me because women's fundamental interaction is with other people and their consciousness rather than bare material reality. That's the job of men who have to go out and actually get resources in the world. And so the fact that men are more scientific, the fact that men are happier working a lot of times with without people, but with stuff, with material, like this is this whole thing, right? That the girls sit around and braid each other's hair and, and want to talk about people perfectly fine. And, and the guys are going out there building forts and, and learning how to hunt and playing war. And, and they, they're happy. You know, when I was a kid, I was happy working with computers. And, and the computer lab that I went to on Saturdays uh, in my school, there were no girls. Not one in the years that I went. Not one girl there. And that's because men are happy to work with stuff and and not that drawn towards working with consciousness, but women 
have evolved to work with other people's consciousness and to to gain resources through interactions rather than going out and getting pulling resources from a harsh, cold, bitter reality that is not open to manipulation. You cannot manipulate the sheep into coming back. You actually have to go and catch them or train a dog to do it or something like that. But you can manipulate a man into giving you resources. Like Mindy um, Lahiri, um, the Mindy Project. There's a sitcom. I watched a few minutes of it the other day. And she was down on her knees cleaning the floor. There was this episode where she was trying to figure out whether she should stay at home or, or go back to work. And naturally, of course, because... It is the kind of show that it is in the world that we are. She ended up, of course, it's better to go back to work. And, and right, of course, right, because that's what the government wants. But she was down on her knees. She was cleaning. And she was just saying to herself, wow, this is the first time I've been down on my knees where I didn't get jewelry. Yeah. Now, a man has to go down a 6,000-foot-in-the-ground mine to dig up a diamond, and then he's got to carry it to the surface, and he's got to learn how to shave it down with machines made of other diamonds and polish it and, and all this kind of crap, right? To actually get a diamond, a man has to risk his life, his limbs, his air, his getting buried alive and, and running out of the methane suddenly pumping out of the ground. Like, that's what a man has to do to get a diamond. But in this joke, the woman has to give a blowjob. See, he has to interact with reality. She has to interact with a person to get the resources. So the fact that um, women are more drawn towards a consciousness populated, consciousness enveloping, consciousness providing resources universe, and men are like, okay, it's nice, but I got to go and get some shit done and God isn't going to provide it. You know, you can have your God thing. I actually have to go out and plant some crops. Right. Yeah, that makes sense in kind of a general sense. I mean, that the man that you were talking about wouldn't obviously go down to the mine himself. You know, he would. Other men would do that, but. But that's not my. That's not my point. The point is that, that it's not women doing it. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Uh, it's funny. Uh, my um, the women in my family, my my mom and my my younger sister, are very kind of go getter kind of people, and they they are very uh, you know. They, they don't want to be defined by the kind of stereotypes that you that, that, that you're kind of talking about. Not that those aren't completely legitimate, but you know, my mom, for example, is getting her uh, her uh, a graduate de- degree in education right now. But like you said, education. Oh, dude. <laughs> oh, dude. You didn't you didn't just contradict yourself that unconsciously, did you? How did I contradict myself? Is education facing reality or people? No, no, no. I was trying to agree with your point that, yeah, it's facing people. That's, that's, that's what I was trying to So that's right within the cliche that I was talking about. But you're saying, well, my parents, my mom is very much different. But this is exactly what was, what was the, the third biggest profession was teacher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry if that sounded, I was trying to disagree with your point. I was trying to say that, that she, she likes to say, oh, oh, I'm not like that. I'm not, you know, I, I don't want to be bounded by those stereotypes, but She's she's getting her edu- her uh, her degree in educate in a higher education. Do you see what I'm saying? I'm I'm trying. I was trying to like agree with your point there. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I thought you were saying that you you so so okay. So she's a person facing person, which is entirely in in the realm of uh, 
of uh, femininity, right? And now, of course, it's generally more profitable but more risky to go and try and get things from reality rather than try and get things from people, right? And so what happens, of course, is that the men go out and fail significantly or succeed significantly, right? Uh-huh. And what happens is when men succeed significantly, women can either go out and try and compete with them directly in the marketplace, or what they can do is complain that men are sexist and then get stuff for free. Mm-hmm. And every time a woman complains about sexism and says, well, only 2% of women are CEOs, right? Or only 2% of women get Nobel Prize, whatever it is, right? Whatever the numbers are. Every time a woman complains that it's sexist and it's bad and the government should give her stuff for free, she is merely confessing that women can't compete. You know, if, if women are upset that only 2% of CEOs are women, then go out and work to become a CEO. Right. But what they want is equal pay for work of equal value. They want the government to come in and force employers to pay women who often will go off and have kids and may not come back and, you know, who have, uh, you know, less, who work fewer hours than men and so on. If you want to get paid as much as a man, then work as hard as a man does and you will be paid as much as a man. Right. Because the market doesn't doesn't discriminate between penises and vaginas. The market doesn't say, outies get paid more than innies. The market says, if you provide value, you will make more money. And the more value you provide, the more money you will make. But when women come and say, I don't want to work as hard as a man, but I sure would love to get some of that money that the men who work hard have. Okay. Then all they're saying is women can't compete, so they have to run to men in the government to get resources for them, which is the most ridiculous. Feminism is the most retrograde situation or, or mindset that is conceivable, which is a woman wants more stuff. Okay, you want to go out and compete with men? Go out and compete with men. A woman wants more stuff. Great. And what does feminism tell women to do? Whine, complain, nag, so that men will go and get you more stuff. Oh, come on. What a ridiculous retrograde notion. How cliched and Victorian hysterical could you possibly be in that, well, I think that men should go and get me stuff because I'm complaining. <laughs> it's like, oh, are you kidding me? I don't decide. This is why I think only 18% of women identify as feminists anymore. It's because they've got some pride and they don't want to pull this manipulative, whiny, nagging, complaining, shrill bullshit where they just wear men down with nagging until the men's like, okay, here's some stuff. Will you shut up now? Because most women have much more pride than that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, so back to the back to the point about about marriage. If we could maybe bring it back. To- Never. No. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> Not that I haven't loved the what you call bull- bullshit Wonderland or whatever. I do love that. I enjoy it very much. Uh, is there anything? Is there anything that you would you would suggest if I'm? You know, obviously, I'm not quite to that. To that, like I said, I'm not quite to the age of of wanting to settle down yet. But if I did kind of say, okay, wow, I really, I really like this person. She's everything that I would look for in a, in a, in a marriage to want from a, from a wife. Um, but she's a Christian. Is there, should that, should I really consider putting, you know, halting it because of that or? No. You don't, you don't think so? 
No, 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 not on that standard alone, I would believe. Now, look, if you can find a, a rational woman who will listen to reason, you don't have to be an atheist when you meet her, right? Because you're not perfect, I'm not perfect, we can all learn from each other. But if you can find a woman who's, you know, willing to listen to reason and so on, then okay, great, fantastic, right? Um, but the the trick to a happy marriage, happy marriage 101, from a guy, you know, very happily married 13, 14 years going on or whatever, right? This is the trick. When you're young, your penis chooses the vagina. And your penis will generally choose wrong. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Now, when you become a little older and a little wiser, your future children choose the vagina. Ah. In other words, not, is she hot? Great if she is. Not a, not a huge problem, although power tends to corrupt people, so be careful. But... Your your baby, your toddler, is not going to care whether the mom is hot, right? What is your baby and toddler going to care about? Whether she's a good provider. Whether she's a good nurse. Whether she's a good mom. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Now, I would argue that the qualities that go into making a good mother are virtually identical with the qualities that go into making a good person. Right. A good wife, a good friend, a good companion. Yeah. And you don't have to have kids to manifest these values, but it helps. So if you think about your future kids choosing the vagina, which seems only fair, they are going to live there for a short amount of time and they're going to come out of it. So, um, you know, they don't care how attractive the tits are, you know, if they're like young Uma Thurman swinging pendulums of happiness. <laughs> They don't. They care if they've got good, healthy milk in them, so to speak. Yeah. And so, you know, at, at three o'clock in the morning, when your kid has a nightmare for the third day in a row, it doesn't matter how nice the lady's calves look in high heels. It matters whether she or you are going to get up and comfort and be patient and soothing and helpful. It matters whether she's going to reason with the children. Rather than bully the children, it matters whether she's aggressive, it matters whether she's patient, it matters whether she's got courage, it matters whether she's going to model the kind of virtues that you want your children to inhabit or to inhabit your children. These things are what matter now. A woman, I think more so than a man, can be religious and not be crazy. For the reasons and other reasons too, but the reasons that we were sort of talking about in the call. Right. So if – it's the old argument I made before. Would you rather a doctor use the wrong methodology to give you the right prescription or would you rather him use the right methodology and give you the wrong prescription? Absolutely. Well, you want the right medicine. Now, if the doctor – prays and gives you the right medicine. This is all nonsense, but, you know, just go with me with it, right? Sure. As opposed to he looks it up and that does all the right methodology but ends up with the wrong medicine. And that's actually not so insane because I'm pretty sure that prayer, assiduously and conscientiously applied, is much better for certain forms of mental ailments than these godforsaken SSRIs that tend to shred the brain like cheese making a pizza. Mm -hmm. So if she has 
genuine, loving, compassionate virtues that come from a religious belief, you will be far better off, in my humble opinion, than someone who's a man-hating social justice warrior atheist, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's good to hear you say that, because that's kind of what I was leaning towards. But I, I, I know that, you know, my own bias is so strong. Uh, you know, there, like I said, there aren't a ton of people in my life I could talk to about this. So I'm glad that I'm glad that you get that perspective because that's really that's really kind of uh, that's that's what you're putting it you're putting my kind of suspicions into into really well worded arguments. Well, then you need to be careful because you're going to fall into confirmation bias. So listen back to this and make sure that I make sense. I just point that out. And a lot of a lot of people, and I I'd speak more for women than men in this regard, my friend, but they're not religious because they really accept St. Augustine's arguments about the ontological proof of God. Yeah. <laughs> that's, not, that's not where they're coming from. Why are most people or women religious? Social benefits. Yeah, social benefits and conformity and, you know, this is what my parents, I don't want to upset them. And, like, it's not, it's not fundamentally because they have a philosophical, metaphysical argument about it and this is why they're like yeah you know and i i've heard this from from people i know who are religious it's like you know it's a social club and this is just where we happen to meet yeah now guys because we've got this it's gotta make sense it's gotta like all hang together right like i don't know if you heard the call about with the guy who a lot of people think i was mean to with regards to evolution but when a guy goes full religious it's like it it bores down into and dismantles his sanity. Yeah. But when women, it's not it's not the same thing with women. And I I know I'm generalizing, and but but nonetheless, for women, it's like this is how we share values. This is how we become good people when we're not very good at philosophy. Yeah. And there is no, you know, I would put Ayn Rand in there, but but nonetheless, there is no world class his history straddling female philosopher or mostly for the most part physicists a couple of chemists there's no mathematicians there's just no world like women they cluster around the middle and they don't go to the extremes of, of smartness and, and dumbness and so for a lot of women it's like it's the easiest way to be a good person is to conform to these values and women don't have the same general compulsion for rational consistency than that men do, because for a man, not having rational consistency meant being a really bad hunter and therefore being a really bad provider and therefore not being chosen by women and therefore genes dying out. Right. But for a woman, it is easier in many ways because they don't, you know, you know the proportion of men to women in this show. It's 90% men who listen to this show, uh, give or take. And it depends on the region and so on. And that falls into, given that there's very high IQ people who listen to the show, pander, pander, but um, that falls into the IQ, right? It's perfectly uh, rational or perfectly logical based upon the IQ spread of the genders as to why there are many more men who listen to this very high IQ show relative to, uh, to women. So it is different for a smart man to be religious because he's got to go all the way. Whereas women just have to go to social conformity and mutual benefit and decent values. They don't have that same drive for 
it's all got to fit together and I've got to go right down to the metaphysics and the epistemology and uh, right this is why theologians tend to be men because they're tortured by certain irrationalities and they've got to find some way to to neoplatonism plus christianity it's got to fit together and it's got to you know like the bridge halves have to meet if you start from either end and if they don't the whole thing's damn well been wasted inconsistency tortures men and for women it's like yeah you know, men don't care what kind of shoes they wear, and women don't care that much about intellectual consistency. These are very <laughs> ridiculous generalizations, but in my experience, there's some significant truth, and there's very strong evolutionary arguments as to why that might be the case. A uh, quick story along that along those lines. I was dating a, a girl, a Christian girl in high school, and I. This is when I began. I kind of stumbled upon your show and a couple others. You know, found Dawkins and those kind of people. And I, I was like, oh, my goodness. I was talking to her on, on, on uh, the phone, and I was like, I, there are all these problems with these doctrines that I had never thought of before. She was like, like what? I was like, well, like there's this and there's that, and there's, you know, there's the problem with faith, and there's the problem of evil, and there's you know, irrationality whatnot. And she said, Andrew, God doesn't want your brain. He wants your heart. Right. And, that, and I think right. that encapsulates what you're saying. There's a, a phrase which is not an argument where people say, you're overthinking this. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, for, for men, it's like, that, that doesn't make no sense. No, that's what we do. Sorry. It's like, your penis is just too big. Like, it's just like, no, that's what we do, right? There's no such thing as overthinking. But for women, there is such a thing as overthinking things. In other words, if you're just kind of getting along with social conformity, you're sharing resources back and forth, you've got enough values to be a really great mom and a really great provider, a really great wife or a really great CEO, if that's what you want to be, I got enough of these values if I go further and I start really thinking about why God allows evil in the world and can you be all-powerful and all-knowing, the stuff that drives men crazy, well, they end up splintering their social support network and creating a lot of enemies, which significantly harms the survivability of their offspring. So, yes, there is overthinking in the female universe, just not so much in the male universe. Yeah. And I would say that, I mean, the, the conformity problem applies applies to men too, but in, in a slightly different way because I have definitely – you know, like I mentioned this, I think in the in, the, in my initial uh, writing of the question, but I have experienced, for the most part, people kind of accept me. But there is definitely, especially in high school, that I experience this kind of like, if you go against the 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 Bible Belt kind of way of thinking, then you run a risk of of some some serious social ostracism, no matter what gender you are. But I but I definitely agree that that the genders um, understand this and experience it in a different way. Right. And the leftist, well, the leftist fantasy, and it is to some degree on the right as well, but with the soul, but the leftist fantasy that we're all the same. Yeah. And therefore, all inequality must result from exploitation. It's completely false, obviously, but... But that's fantasy that we all have, that, that well, men and women should... Uh, we're the same, and therefore, all differences must be the result of sexism. Mm-hmm. That is extremely pernicious. And fundamentally, the funny thing about it coming from the left, it's saying, just as they say about race, it's saying that although men and women have fundamentally different evolutionary pressures, yeah. that men and women have ended up exactly the same. In other words, this bear lives in the snow. This bear lives in the woods. Therefore, we would expect the, the, the fur 
of the bear to be identical. And it's like, that's not how evolution works. I'm like, it's not. It's not. And, and of course, if there wasn't this leftist hysteria that all gender differences that are identified must be the result of sexism in the same way that all racial differences that are identified must be the result of racism. If there wasn't this terror that, that experts have in, in talking about this, like be fools rush in where angels fear to tread. But if we could actually study this stuff, what a wonderful step forward in human understanding in, in sympathy it would be. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and the last thing I'll say is that a lot of intellectuals, and I think this is true across the political spectrum, intellectuals fundamentally lack empathy and imagination for less intelligent people. Like, when I was younger, I worked at a, a seafood restaurant. It's a pretty classy place. And I, of course, was just doing it to, to, to make some money to while I was in college and all that. But there was this guy who worked there, and he'd been a waiter for 25 years. And I found myself, in my mind, being a total dick to this guy. Like, Oh, how terrible to be a waiter for 25 years. Like, why wouldn't you try and become a manager? If it was something, just do open your own restaurant. Like, what's, you know? But he was a nice guy. He was a friendly guy. He made his little jokes. He was, he helped me. And here I was in my little ivory tower of intellectualism looking down on this guy who was helping me be a better waiter. You know, he was happy to serve my tables when he wasn't. He was a great team player. Uh, you know, he, you know, when I, I had a breakup at that time and he was very nice, you know, listen, a really nice guy. And I, in my ivory tower of vanity, was looking, to, oh my God, I can't believe I've been waiting for 25. How, how plebeian. Like, it just, how, what a terrible human being I was in that moment with regards to that. And I caught myself. And I was like, well, he's not bothered by, he enjoys what he does. You know, he was the kind of guy like a lot of people do. Like, he, he just, he had a job so he could do the stuff that he wanted. You know, he liked motorcycles and he, you know, he, he just, he had a job. He went and did his job. And there's been times where I've been doing my high-flying intellectual act where I'm like, yeah, being a waiter would be pretty good right now, right? I mean, and this guy was just a less intelligent guy. And what kind of, what kind of a douchebag was I that I looked down on this guy who's a nice guy, who's a helpful guy, who's doing something that people want. He's you know, able to sell his services as a waiter. What's, what was wrong with him being a waiter? Well, I was projecting myself into his life and I was saying, how would I feel if I was a waiter for 25 years? Well, I'd feel like a failure because I I'm capable, and my life has demonstrated that I'm capable of a lot more than being a waiter. Yeah. But it's like the guy with the giant dick looking at the guy with the tiny dick saying, why aren't you in porn? <laughs> you know, just it makes, he didn't have the equipment mentally to do what I do. Now, if I say, okay, well, his life must be terrible because if I was him, my life would be terrible. Right. That's fundamentally not understanding that we're different. Yeah. And having respect for that difference. And it's fundamentally 
cruel because it's making him I never said anything to him and I caught myself and I was a much nicer person and and a better person to him one and I you know again so I never said anything to the guy this was just like a couple of days and I was like I heard this chatter in my head. Oh my God! What what a ridiculous underutilization of right? For, for, stop being a dick! Stop being a dick! Undick yourself, Steph. Because if I'd said anything, or it was like maybe he would have felt bad. And and for what? Short guy is not on the basketball team. So you're a tall guy. You're on the basketball team, and you're you know short guy with one leg's not on the basketball team. Do you make him feel bad about that? Only if you're a serious dick. And I was, in those few days, being a serious dick about that. And so this idea that that this is what happens all the time, all the time. The feminists, to give them, like the early feminists, the second wave, let's say, to, to give them as, you know, let's just say they weren't CIA paid Marxist agents of social destruction or whatever. So they were very smart women, very smart women. And they said, the life of a housewife would be unbearable to me. Therefore, the life of a housewife must be unbearable to everyone. Do you see what I mean? They did the same thing to all women that I did with this nice waiter, except they didn't catch themselves after three days and saying, I'm really being a vagina to this person. Because you say I was being a dick, so I'm just transcribing. I see what you're doing. Right? So, okay, I get it. If you've got an IQ of 140 plus, then I get that being a housewife might not be the very best thing for you to do. It might be a little frustrating. Although there are some very, very smart women. Phyllis Schlafly, who had six kids and was Illinois Mother of the Year and became a lawyer in her 50s and is like smart as a whip and best-selling author and was a very successful mom. And she was writing once where she said, oh yeah, so at my house the other day, bunch of men around, bunch of women around, and a mouse runs across the linoleum. And what happens? All the women scream and jump up on a chair and all the men go and get a dustpan and a broom. Because, <laughs> you know, totally. nothing changes. So there are women who can, you know, and I'm a very smart guy, and I've been a stay-at-home dad since my daughter was born, and I think it's great. Wow, I do have this, I want to say outlet, because I'm backed up like a 17-year-old, but but it is so women who are like, this is the Hillary Clinton thing, right? You know, what was I supposed to do, stay home and bake cookies? Yeah, like that's all that women who raise children do is bake cookies. Well, I mean, that's a kind of, so she looks at that life, and she says, because I would hate that life, that life must be hateful. Exactly. You know, implicit in what they're in what in that argument is that a lawyer is superior to a waiter, which is really right. It's not. It's not. Yeah. The market sorts it out. Sorry, you were going to say. No, I was just I was just going to say. You know, with that that rationale that you had in your head, and I've definitely caught myself doing that too. Like you know. There's always that real, a really, really nice janitor at my high school who everyone loved, and I, I was like, oh man, I really like that guy. But like, why is he being a janitor? You know, like. But then I was like, wait a second, how hateful or discriminatory of me to say that a janitor is 
inferior to a lawyer or a doctor or a businessman. You know? Right. Yeah, it's like that old quote from Wall Street where the the father says to the son, I, I never raised you to judge a man by the size of his wallet. Just because you are paid more doesn't mean you're worth more as a human being. Absolutely. And lots of people who aim high do the Icarus thing, right? They they crash and burn. They flame out. They right. They would have been better off to not, right? And so the sowing of discontent where, where – and, and Marxists are the same way too. Marxists who are smart, they look at workers and they say, those workers have a terrible life because if I were doing that job, Marx – a very smart guy, whatever his other godforsaken faults are. We've got a presentation called The Truth About Marx. People can check that out. But Marx was a super smart guy. And so if Marx had been operating a lathe for 40 years, he would have, after six minutes, used the lathe on his own head. Because <laughs> like, yeah. that life is unbearable to me or would be unbearable to me. Therefore, that life must be unbearable. And because I would hate that job, the whole system must be fixed so that that job is not what it currently is. A lot of people who work as an employee don't want to be the boss. I also saw this. Like when I worked at a, uh, at a restaurant, there was a, a cliched Italian manager. Really stressful. Lunchtime in particular, crazy stressful. And like he'd sometimes throw up after lunches because he would just be so stressed about it. And I remember the waiters thinking like, man, you couldn't. I remember them saying to me, there were these old pizza fossils who like had been working at the restaurant for, I don't know, since the Paleozoic era. And, um, and they were like, you could not pay me enough to do that job. Yeah. They did not want the job. Now, a smart guy, like he, maybe he started as a waiter and wanted to do more. Maybe he regretted it. I don't know. But the idea that all of the workers want to be managers, like why can't we have a society where all the workers are managers? It's like, because they don't want that job. Yeah. And if you're a manager, there are some times where that seems like a really, really good idea. Yeah. And so the, I think the feminists are like, well, I'd hate being a housewife. So being a housewife must be terrible. So I'm going to go and sow all this discontent among housewives. And say that they're, they're dumb breeding cattle who just bake cookies and gossip and have weak tea and, and do nothing with their lives. And they're total dicks to women who are very happy being housewives because they're sowing all this discontent. When some really smart, vocal, verbally intelligent, brilliant, genius-style person comes along and tells you that your life sucks and you should do so much better, it's really tough if you're not as smart and you're kind of intimidated by that. And if people are intimidating, it's kind of tough to say, no, you're wrong. You, you you know maybe you are thinking of yourself in my life, and you'd be you wouldn't wouldn't like it. But I look at your life. I don't want that. Does that mean I should for like I would hate to be an academic, and I'd hate to be a writer, and I'd hate to go out there giving speeches. I like my time with my family and my kids. I'd hate to be doing all this traveling. And so, should you not do your job because I wouldn't like your job? Then shut the hell up about me being a housewife just because you don't want to do my job. Shut up. Go away. 
You don't want to have kids. You're too good for it. You don't like the smell of fresh cookies and fresh nappies and the sound of children's laughter. Fuck you. Go away. Do your thing. Leave me alone, you crazy, cantankerous, bigoted bitch. It's not a lot of housewives going to have that speech in them, right? Yeah. And now... After two generations of being exposed to the wonderful joys of customer service, women are leaving the house, leaving the workforce in droves. And now it's like, you know what? That that housewife thing, that raising kids thing, that was a pretty sweet gig. Yeah. What was I thinking? Yeah. And now all of these women, okay. Like, like people say to me, oh, Steph, you're really funny. You should be a comedian. And I'm like, God, no. <laughs> no, I like my family. I don't want to go on the road for 300 days a year. I'm bad at roofing people. Like, I don't, like, that to me would be a horrible life. A horrible life. Does that mean that comedians are bad or stupid or, No. I even caught it myself there where I said, I like my family, thus implying that comedians don't. And comedians do. They just love comedy more, right? Because they're off doing that. I don't know. Maybe they don't have families. Maybe the kids are grown or whatever, right? But I would not want the job of going to comedy club after comedy club, traveling all the time. Like, I, I, I'm glad there are comedians because I like laughing at people. But I would not want that life at all. That doesn't mean it's a bad life. That's why you pay him to do it. Yeah, yeah. Like, I would hate being a dentist. I'm really glad there are dentists. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And now, of course, uh, well, women in Europe who've, who've said, oh, can you believe Cheryl became a housewife? How terrible. I can't. So much potential squandered and wasted to be this empty, oven-filling breeder of cookie bake. I can't believe what a loss to humanity that she's just producing. So, okay, women are like, okay, well, I guess I won't have kids anymore. Hey, what are all these North Africans doing in the country raping people? Oh, that's right. Being a mother is really bad. And it's a huge waste of your wonderful potential, you people clustering around 105 IQ. So nobody had any kids, so there's no one to pay for anyone's retirement. So now we've got to import all of the incompatible, women-hating, Western-hating cultures that the world has vomited forth from the dark recesses of theological hell. How's that going to work out for you? Not well. And I had a long chat with my daughter today about the second half of life, so I won't get into the whole speech. But it's a long time. It's a long time to go from 45 to 85 without a family. Yeah. A long time to go. I mean, just look at Madonna. Ah, <laughs> oh, that vile Satan spawn of loose female morality is finally getting her karmic blowback. It's beautiful. You know, it's, maybe this means that I'm a more feminine guy, but I sometimes hear you talking about getting to do what you love and be a stay-at-home dad, and I'm like, wow, that sounds like the ideal situation. And I, I hear so many people talking bad about being a stay-at-home parent, and I'm just like, 
really? That's that sounds bad to you. If you can like, you know, have have a living and raise kids. I'm like, wow, I, I definitely don't see eye to eye with the people who say that, you know? Yeah, no, and, I, and like I get these comments like, oh, Steph, you're a really good public speaker. You should go out and give more speeches. It's like, yeah, but travel sucks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It does. Like, it sucks. And, it, you know, it's it's at least a couple of days out of my week. And my wife has a career. And I could spend a couple of days for a 40-minute speech <laughs> And be tired. I've never given a speech not tired just because, you know, there's usually time change or I've got to get up early and screwed up my sleep for some damn flight somewhere. And I was tired and I still think you have good speeches. I like public speaking, but oh man, it's just too much. It's too much travel. And, you know, I can't go with my daughter because, well, at least I couldn't before and, and all that. And plus she'd be like, dad, I'm bored. You know, like, when, like make a, make a, make some funny voices or something. Although I probably would, but um, I just, you know, I mean, it's opportunity cost. Like I could go and spend, you know, four days preparing, traveling, giving the speech, coming back, and then I've got to get my sleep schedule back adjusted and all that. And it's, like it's basically it's a week of like weird disruptions for like one forty-minute speech, or I could do five shows that do a quarter mil. Anyway, it doesn't really matter. But I mean, it's just different different choices. Uh, it's not the cost benefit doesn't work for me because it's not like getting paid huge amounts of money if any to to go give a speech and it's also not like uh you know if you look at my top videos you have to go quite a ways down before you come to a live speaking gig so anyway it's not really here this is the same thing with going on other people's shows and it's just not it doesn't pay off that much relative to uh, working on stuff solo so but yeah if, if you can you know occasionally like everything nothing comes for free there is the occasional pound of flesh that you have to give up for confronting the prejudices of the world but that's you know that's in the job description i mean complaining about that is like being a surgeon and saying ew that's blood (laughs) yeah that's the gig man you know i really had that that value of of you know having a family structure you know you've talked a lot about the importance of having two parents well my i've always had that really drilled into me not by words but uh, by my parents' actions, you know, my dad traveled all the time when he was a, a broadcaster, and he would have to go to all these sports events and broadcast these these things. And they offered him a ton of money to do twice as many things. And he he wound up he sat us down. I was probably eight or nine at the time. He sat us, me and my siblings, down. And he said, "There's a reason why I'm not going to take this job that's going to offer me a ton of money." And it's because I don't think it's valuable for me to be bringing in, you know, X amount of money, which is way, which is considerably more than we make now, but to not have me at home ever, except for 10 weeks out of the year. And so that immediately told me, wow, you know, there are some things that are, you know, cost benefit analysis is more than just money. And your career choices are, you know, go so far beyond, you know, what's going to make you more money. And so, yeah, I've definitely come back more to the camp of, of, uh, of kind of what you're talking about. Yeah, no, I mean, I could have a bigger show, more exposure, TV. I mean, but why? Exactly. Why? I mean, I'm in Canada, so a 
let's say I want to pay 60% taxes on every, no thanks, not really. And um, for, for your father too, I mean, it's very admirable. And I, you know, I respect and, and appreciate what he did because, you know, at the end of your life, you don't look back and say, boy, it'd been great if I'd talked about one more baseball game 25 years ago or 10 or 100. Because that's all gone and forgotten, and nobody ever listens to that. At least this stuff people will be listening to in the future, but people don't listen to recordings of old baseball games or whatever he did this broadcasting. But your relationship with your kids, that that matters. It matters enormously. It matters really more than anything else because at least your spouse is there by choice and your kids aren't. You know, my daughter is still a biological prisoner of accidental birthing. And so, uh, yeah, the prison's got to put on a good show in order for her to think it's a hotel. Yeah. I tell you what, it paid off too because now I'm in college and uh, I I call him all the time, call my mom all the time, and I, you know, I want to know what he's up to. You know, it's and I think that's probably because he showed me as a kid I care about you enough to give up this job that would offer me, you know, eighty, ninety thousand dollars a year, and 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 return and, and now it's great. Now I like I. I, I, you know, I mentioned this maybe in the question, like I talked to him about, you know, Hey, look, I'm not a Christian anymore. And he's like, all right, I, that's, I accept that. And he wants to have conversations about it and we have a great relationship still. And so, um, I, I mean, I definitely now know and that, that being, you know, like if you, if you, if you, uh, model your life in the way that it's in accordance with your values it people will people notice especially especially if you have kids and and uh and i and i think that definitely proves the the benefit of that right and um is your mother religious uh, yeah both of my parents are right right is there one more than the other uh it's so funny my dad was raised in a super duper conservative religious uh household and he has he is he is strayed. He's gone a lot more moderate religiously, and and my mom was raised uh, in a super duper liberal household, and has come a little bit more to the center. Uh, so, I would say they're they're about equal religiously. Yeah, the money thing. I, I remember when I lived. I don't. Doesn't really matter the details. So I lived in a in a. Condo with a nice pool. Yeah. I was, I didn't have a condo. I was just renting a room. But anyway, I was in a condo with a nice pool. I'd go down and I'd, I'd work out. And, I, and one night I was, I was in the pool. It was empty. I was swimming. Yeah. Sorry, that's redundant. I was skiing in the pool. And I remember thinking, okay, let's say I do make a lot of money in my life. I was just starting out in an IT career. And I said, okay, I've got a business I'm starting up. What if I do make a lot of money in my life? I could end up with a house with a pool inside it, like this condo. I could end up with a house that big that I have an indoor pool. I knew some people had an indoor pool. A friend of my mom's when I was growing up had an indoor pool. This is back when her husband, the pilot, you could actually make money as a pilot. And I remember thinking, okay, so let's say I have this house with an indoor pool and it's as empty as this one. Yeah. How much could I possibly enjoy it wow yeah. wouldn't that actually be 
almost worse. Oh, totally. Having this big, beautiful pool. And also, how bad would it be if the only people who came over were the people who wanted to use my pool? Uh, oh, how sad, right? Oh, terrible. Scrooge McDuck swimming in money, you know? Yeah. Richie Rich, right? At least you're the best friends of Butler. <laughs> That's a chilling story. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, listen, I got to move on to the last caller, but, um, or next caller, but uh, I really appreciate the chat. I hope it's uh, helpful. A- aim for virtue and to, to a large degree, you know, my, my sort of thinking evolves with additional information, and I'm much more sympathetic now to the manifestation of virtue, and I'm less fastidious about its cause, if that makes yeah. sense. It does. It does. So uh, that's sort of where I'm at, and, um, you know, people can make of that what they will, but I just wanted to sort of mention where I'm at. But, uh, yeah, let, let us know how it goes if you get a... A hot Christian chiclet, uh, let us know. I'll invite you to the wedding. Yeah, thanks for this conversation. <laughs> thanks, man. Thanks. Bye. All right. Well, up next is Michael. He wrote in and said, how can I determine my sexual market value? I've heard you mention it in some of the shows that I've listened to and think it might be something of value for me to at least look into. Any pointers or anything? I happen to have a case of yellow fever. <laughs> And I've actually embraced that even more after being informed of the IQ levels members of that community have, but I'm finding it difficult to find someone who matches the balance I'm truly looking for. Where would you, with your life experience and intellect, suggest holding out and lowering my standards as age increases with potential matches? That's from Michael. Well, hi, Michael. How you doing? I'm living the dream, man. How about you? <laughs> I'm living the reality. Um <laughs> So what, uh, the, the yellow fever, so you are into Asian, East Asian ladies, is that right? Yep, you're, you hit the nail on the head there, um, Northeastern specifically, but Japanese. Like what, how, uh, like one village, or like how specific are we getting <laughs> uh, here? Japan, Korea, Northeastern China. But and have you dated uh, women from that? Background? I have. Um, my last girlfriend was, was Japanese, I met her here. In America. Is she not Japanese enough? Is that why she's no longer your girlfriend? No, she's, she... she's no longer in the West. She she went back to Japan. She was here, unfortunately, uh, temporarily, like doing a study abroad type thing. So kind of knew that going into the thing, but I thought, hey. But why not uh, follow her back and marry her? If, I mean, maybe <laughs> I'm missing something, but. Um, that uh, That's something I definitely entertained. I had actually considered trying to move there prior to meeting her anyway. I've been there twice. Um, it's a very remarkable place. I don't know if you've been, but um, yeah, just the whole... Um, China, yes. Uh, I've not been to Japan. So you didn't follow the girl back. But, you know, to me, it's like, if she's the one, then pay any price, bear any burden, right? Yeah, I'm I going totally, to totally had the I, mentality, no but I don't think she was necessarily on the same page. I'd only known her for three or four months, and then she went back. I guess it just was, wasn't long enough for her to, you know, oh, yeah, come here with me eventually and make everything... Yeah, I... I um, I, I dated a Chinese woman for a while, uh, a, a very nice, a very nice young lady. Um, she actually bought a plant to our first date, which I, <laughs> I found very, very charming, very charming. I kept that plant for quite a while, and I thought that's pretty cool. And uh, she was remarkably tall. I mean, I, I'm about six foot, and she was like a little taller than me. Uh, oh, wow. a very, yeah, very, very nice, uh, a very nice young lady. But um, uh, anyway, so. Um, when did this uh, first uh, come about for you? This uh, did you did you have an initial imprinting? Uh, did you type yellow fever into Google at some point <laughs> as a teenager? Or? No, I I mean to be totally honest, I was raised Catholic. I'm no longer Catholic. I still am a Christian, 
Protestant. Um, but I remember even at like eight, nine, maybe 10 years old, sitting in mass. Um, I, I lived in Virginia Beach for most of my life, which has like the third highest Filipino concentration in in America. Um, so I just remember even at that young age, like just being fascinated with all the young Filipino girls as they would go up to receive the the body and blood of Christ. Um, so yeah, it's kind of like, it's been, been a thing as far as I can remember. I tried to kind of um, bury it, I want to say five to six years ago for, for a year or so, but then just mostly due to kind of social pressures, if you will, at the time. But since then, I'm just a couple of years uh, ago or so, I was like, yeah, I just came back out of the closet unashamedly, so to speak. So um, yeah, just now, uh, hang on, hang on. Is it, is there a particular physical characteristics of Asian girls or Asian women that you find particularly appealing or is it a value thing or uh, I, I would say it's, it's probably both. Um, Physically, yeah, just the, the the dark, rich, typically thick black hair. I mean, not all of them have thick hair. The skin color, texture, and eyes, and just uh, the usually they're a little smaller and such. Um, I'm not terribly huge. I'm not small. I'm about five ten, but um, they, you know, are at, on average shorter and such. So that's always nice. And um, you know, at least the way they kind of present themselves to be. At least uh, in in the areas I'm interested, a little more conservative. I guess Korea might kind of be tossing that by the wayside more recently. But um, so tell me about sorry, tell me what you mean by more conservative. Uh, just the, the like the way they dress and such, and how they present themselves. Like what girl in America is going to bring a plant on their first date? You know, just kind of like a little. Yeah, more, it was lovely. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, my my last girlfriend was extremely lovely. No games, no nonsense in terms of pursuing her and, and such, and. Uh, but uh, just yeah, like the values are still a little more conservative. I would I would say in general, to my experience, at least to my knowledge. Uh, so yeah, definitely a combination of of the two categories you gave. So. And have you dated? Uh, you're Caucasian, is that right? Yes. And have you dated uh, many Caucasian women? Um, uh, I my first um, my first love so to speak was was caucasian um i mean i had like a few minor d uh girlfriends Th this person i never actually dated i got friend zoned i was in high school at the time still like learning the the art of pursuing a girl and sealing the deal so to speak wait two or two two asian girls i've dated doesn't matter okay go ahead i just completely forgot I, I was not parallel thinking it just it popped up but sorry go ahead oh good um yeah, so I had like a couple of official girlfriends after that person in high school, but um, they were not white. Um, but the second person I really um, was was in deep with emotionally and mentally and all that stuff was half Korean, half Greek. Um, but we never we never dated. I was friends with them for about a year and then kind of had the aha. Wow, I, I want to be more than friends with this person. Um, but since her, it's been... Uh, been mostly uh yeah it's been exclusively asian so that's been the last five years or so and um this two or three people since then i think i don't i mean i'd have to sit down and consciously remember all you know all those relationships but uh yeah two or three in the last five six years or so since that that second really uh involved relationship that was never officially a dating relationship but now, how uh, did, uh, as far as ethnicity goes or race goes, mm -hmm. uh, 
um, do you think of yourself as white at all? It's not any kind of trick question. <laughs> no, I, I, I totally I ask myself mean. this sometimes, too. I'm just kind of curious what your thoughts are on that. Uh, Stefan, I think of myself as a rainbow. <laughs> no, I'm to- totally kidding. Um, I, I would I would say I'm, I'm pretty white. Maybe not... Um, I don't know, not like yuppie or anything, or or hipster. If if you're familiar with those kind of subcultures, no, no, no. I'm I'm just talking ethnicity, not a particular cultural oh. subgroup. Oh, yes, definitely, yeah. And um, the the Asian girls, women, mm-hmm. do do they think of themselves as Asian? And look, the, the reason that I was some to before I wrote in the second sex, she said that the first thing that I think about when I think about myself is I'm a woman. Now, I don't, what was that old Stephen Colbert joke? Uh, I don't see color. People tell me I'm white and I believe them. But I don't really think of myself as, as white or anything like that. But I also have done the thought experiment, the sort of black like me thought experiment. Okay, what if I was a different race or mm-hmm. a different gender or whatever? Would I think or feel differently? I think that for myself, I wouldn't. But I think there'd be a lot of horizontal cultural cues that would be very different. Mm. And I wonder the degree... To which, and I, I've read some studies on this, which we did this uh, for, for Elliot Roger, who's, you know, is I think half Caucasian and half Asian, that kids who are mixed race have some challenges. Mm-hmm. Not just that they may end up president, but they have challenges in that, in a sense, neither fish nor fowl, it's tough for them to find the tribe, so to speak. Right. And so as far as, and this is neither here nor there, and certainly it's no, it's something to mull over, right? That if you have, let's say you move to Japan, you marry a Japanese woman, and you have kids. Will Japan, a Japanese society, accept those kids as thoroughly as they would a full Japanese kid? To my knowledge, they absolutely would not. Um, Although I'm... I'm aware of uh, kind of movements to change that. I, I've watched some videos on YouTube of the Hafu um, community, people that are half biracial, either white, black, and, and Japanese, and they're more often than not not quite accepted. But yeah, that no, that would. I mean, we we're we're tribal species, you know. I mean, and I my tribe is the people of the mind. I don't care about the ethnicity, right. but we are. You know, not everyone is super smart and and oh japan japan is pretty high but um they, we are a tribal species and if you're going to make decisions to marry outside your ethnicity it is less of a challenge for you but if you're very smart you have to look at the numbers and the numbers with regression to the mean is that if you're super smart your kids are not likely to be as smart as you and if they're biracial then they're not likely to be as smart as you, and they may have trouble finding a place where they feel that they fit, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. And it may not feel like you may move to Japan and feel perfectly comfortable, and right, but that may be a function of intelligence, which your kids may not have. Again, regression to the mean. If you're six foot seven, your kids are not likely to be as tall as you are. They're not going to be four feet, but they're not going to be six foot seven. And so I just, that that's a consideration that, needs to be, I would say, needs to be in your mind when it comes to, you know, whatever decisions you make for yourself. I, you know, I'm interested, but I don't 
I'm not invested in. What I'm concerned about is generally the decisions that people make for other people and, and in general, my, kids. my kids would right fall under that category. So you you need to do some research. I'm no expert on this, right? I've, I've like read an afternoon of this stuff, but do some research about some of the challenges that are pretty significant that mixed race kids have, and and you know read read their experiences, look at the studies, and so on. It's not any kind of absolute, you understand, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's something that that your kids, if you if you go to Japan and marry a Japanese woman, have kids there. That's fine, obviously. It's not the initiation of force. But I think it's going to be important for your kids to know that you knew about some of the challenges so that you could work to alleviate or prevent some of the challenges from manifesting to the degree to that's possible. Does that make any sense? It does. Yeah. All right. Um, what about language? Would you obviously be willing to – like what if what if her parents don't speak English? Oh, no. I mean I would be more than willing to, to learn um, – that would obviously take time and work, but something. <laughs> well, you really have the fever if you're willing to learn kanji and yeah, <laughs> whatever. I said kanji, yeah, the the Japanese, right? I mean, that is, I mean, that's like like ten years of significant study, right? Um, yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I would just are English speakers really that repulsive? <laughs> really that repulsive to use? Okay, I could speak the language of you and your relatives, but this lady has a bit of an ochre hue, so I'm going to put ten years of study into learning Japanese. Like, wow, that's you. Don't ever go colorblind or whatever. <laughs> but again, you could you could meet a, a um, an Oriental. Uh, woman where you are right. you know family speaks english and perfectly naturalized and all that would that be because that's going to be less cultural right I and mean, some but that's going to be more physical and less cultural right which i'm totally i mean totally fine with that it'd be obviously simpler in many ways um but yeah Okay, so um, as far as your sexual market value goes, how old are you? I'll be 27 in about two months. And how much money do you have? Um, I have savings. How do you, how exactly do you mean that? Well, um, your, uh, okay, and you just don't have to give me a dollar, but what's your, what's your rough salary? Uh, mid 40s. Oh. Okay, that's not US. particularly high. Right. Um, what about your your assets? Um, I have a car to my name. I have. Uh, Is it paid? Um, it will be in a couple of years. Um, I have about uh, 20, 20 grand saved, some tied up in mutual funds. I don't know if that's the right phrase for, for mutual funds yeah, <laughs> tied up in. Mutual I mean. It, if you're a lawyer who's articling, you're not going to make much money, but your future earning potential is right. fairly high. Sure. Right. What is your trajectory of income potential? Um, not quite sure. I haven't figured that out. Um, no, I mean, I'm just kind of, I have uh, cash, six months worth of savings, and then I'm kind of. No, just- no, no. Sorry. Could you like? Could you be making eighty in five years? As from forty now, or is it going to somewhat stay around the same neighborhood? Um, I, I'm not quite sure. I just started with a new company the last month and a half. I don't know quite their um, their raise schedule. I know they give healthy bonuses each year. Um, I'm actually strongly considering uh, 
largely in part due to a few episodes of yours that I've listened to going back to graduate school and trying to change industries outright. So that's a, a hopefully not at the same time as you're also learning <laughs> Japanese. Uh, hopefully that's not going to collide. Okay. Uh, so, uh, and you're, so sorry, go ahead. If, if I was to make that change, I do think the, uh, the, there would be a significant jump in pay considering uh, what I would like to study and hopefully get in get into doing. Right. Okay. And uh, when I'm talking about your sexual market value here, I'm not talking about your tequila-laced bangability. Right. I assume you're not like, how do I go and have a one-night stand with a Japanese? Like, I don't care about that. Um, I don't want to talk about that. We're pursuing about- marriage, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, how much fun is your family to marry into? <laughs> I would I would say they'd, they'd be a blast. Um, pretty typical family, um, you know, somewhat morally upright and and all that um, uh, by um, a number of my friends' standards, probably slightly opinionated just based off of how people say I am. But um, no, I mean, very, very caring and um, nurturing towards, you know, me and my siblings. And I would assume the same for um, and welcoming towards any person that uh, I would kind of try to bring into the family uh, um, and, you know, any grandkids I would have. So I, I, would, I would think it'd be a very good family to try to or or potentially come into as a a daughter-in-law okay and how would they be in terms of accepting a uh, japanese woman into the family uh i'm not i'm please understand i'm not asking are they racist i mean like anything like that i totally understand yeah no uh, my parents are well aware of my uh preferences and um i mean they they met my last my last girlfriend they they met the girlfriend I had prior to that, they're, I would say they're pretty involved in my life. I try to keep them as such. And, um, no, they, they're very welcoming of the thought. The, uh, the, the grandkids with blue eyes, they, they already have from my older sister. So uh, that, that was, my mom had mentioned, I, I, you know, the only thing with you going for an Asian girl is I wouldn't have grandkids with blue eyes because I have blue eyes, but she already has those with, with my older sister. So I'm not like super worried. I think ultimately they would, just want my happiness to be the the uh, thing that was most important, and they've communicated that. So they, I don't think it'd be an issue whatsoever. And with regards to if you have a wife who stays home with the kids, would your family be available to help? Um, theor- theoretically, I would say yes. Although I um, just about a year ago moved from where I, my parents are. So uh, logistically, that'd be a, an issue. But yeah, in terms of advice and... Would you, um, but would they or you move? Because, I mean, it's hard raising a kid without family support. Yeah. Um, I don't Because if you want sexual market value, this is reproductive market value if mm-hmm. you're looking for a wife and kids. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to look at the cold-eyed look at, okay, if I marry this guy how many resources do I have available to mm-hmm. me? Now, maybe her family would be around and that would help. Mm-hmm. But if they're not, then if your family's not around and you're working a lot, which you will tend to do when you become a father, because mm-hmm. it's sort of an instinctual thing, then she's going to have some solitude, right? Right. Sure. Um, yeah. Moving. Okay. I mean, I've considered moving back, but that was more heavily considered prior to considering graduate school. Um, yeah. I mean, Ideally, I think it'd be wise and uh, something I would like to do in terms of trying to uh, locate or relocate to either um, the area my parents were happen to be in or or hers if 
not around my parents. So yeah, that's um, to be determined, I guess. But okay. And um, so you, you don't make a lot of money. Yeah. And again, you're 27, right? So this is not listen. It's not not a big problem. Right. Um, but you don't make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, your take home is not enough to support a family. I would right. assume, right? Yeah. So. So if you want to stay at home wife, you're going to need more money. Yep. Right? Because she's going to look and say, okay, well, if I marry this guy, his family's not around. He doesn't make much money. He's thinking of going back to school. That's a challenge, right, for sexual market value for reproduction. Because if you want to go back to school, what, are you going to spend two years in grad school? Yeah. Okay, so you've got a money going out in another two years. Now, if the woman is your age, she's going to say, okay, I'm not going to be able to figure out this guy's earning potential until he's in his early 30s which means I got to invest four years into the guy before I figure out how much money he's going to make and whether that's going to be enough money for me to stay home and raise our kids. Right. And if you have, like if you want a wife who is going to really want to go out and work and so on, then you have more challenging logistics, you know, good daycare and all that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. and not having a primary caregiver for your kid. And I'm, you know, as I know, very much opposed for very rigorous moral and and scientific and statistical reasons. Uh, You know, dumping kids in daycare is like marrying a woman and immediately having an affair with a stewardess on the way home from your honeymoon. It just seems like, okay, what's the point? So, um, so yeah, if you want to offer a woman the stay at home thing, then having more resources is important. Now, the ideal for a woman is for you to have a lot of resources already and not have to work as hard, (laughs) right? right? Because otherwise she's like, well, it's great that you have a lot of resources, but you're not really that involved in co-parenting because you're working 60 hours a week, right? Um, so if your career is starting out, if you go to grad school and you graduate, would you go next year or you graduate when you're 30 or whatever, then it's not like magic money that opens up the avenue for you, but then you're still in a sense starting out in your career. And when you're starting out in your career, that's when you have to really work a lot. Like I used to (laughs) be bothered when I was starting out in my career. Look at these older guys. It's like they leave at five o'clock and I'd be there till midnight. And it's like, that's because they're more efficient (laughs) because they've got more experience and they know what they're doing. They have to look everything up. Right. And um, so you will be, you know, starting out at 30, basically in your career. And that's a challenge because you either won't be that successful, in which case it's not going to be enough money for her to stay in any kind of comfort, or you will be successful, which means you're going to be gone a lot mm-hmm. while she's raising the kids without uh, a family members around. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 Okay. It does. Um, your, uh, physical appearance, what are we talking here? This is more in terms of initial attraction, but, uh, one to 10, where, where do you put yourself? Uh, I have no idea. I would, I would say seven and a half to eight. Um, I could be totally deceived. <laughs> All right. Um, so you said you were how, how tall again? About five ten. Five ten. Okay. So, you know, for... Asians, you're like the jolly white giant. Right. Um, so you're tall and uh, head of hair? Yeah. It's all, it's all hanging in there? Yeah, still. Starting, all right, starting body to come out, but... Wait, 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 hang on, what? You starting to lose it? Uh, I mean, I, I don't know how seriously. I just noticed, um, you know, when I brush my hair, more comes out than it did a year ago, but I don't know how normal or accelerated that might be. Um, but it, yeah, I'm just, you know, probably typical signs of aging are starting to appear. I don't think right. it's anything abnormal. <clears throat> Body mass index? I don't know. Um, I don't mean down to the... I mean, are you a lean guy? Are you yeah, a fat guy? I'm, I'm lean. Talking? Okay. 
um, overall health and uh, athleticism and, and so on? Yeah, uh, slightly above average. Okay, good. And um, a history of, of, of genetic ailments, uh, family, uh, mental health issues, um, cancer, whatever it is that, that may have some genetic component? Uh, none that I know of. Oh, that's good. That's, that's good as a whole. And um, yeah, a little different from me. Hey, we're all nuts. Want to get on board? <laughs> um, I mean, uh, uh, we are in, in the sense that I'm, I'm half Irish, so we, there's something a little off, but nothing <laughs> – just hey, say, what's say wrong it. with being half Irish? Nothing. Wait, it's I great. <laughs> I'm I'm half Irish too. So anyway, um, and so okay, uh, reasonably full head of hair, good body mass index. Um, I guess blue eyed. You said blue eyes. Yes. Okay, that's a plus for some for sure. sure. Um, Irish subtract eighty five percent. No I'm kidding. <laughs> um, hey, what's and, wrong with being Irish? You you have a you know you good conversationalist uh, good sense of humor I assume do you have the ability to give women the socially acceptable orgasm of making her laugh in public? Um, some of them, yeah. Okay, that's good. If you can make a woman laugh, um, that is, I think, a very. This is why men have a sense of humor because it it raises your sexual market value significantly if you can make uh, a woman laugh because then you can. Um, apply the the remote control endorphins without actually undressing her that's good right so yeah. oh oh sorry mike has just mentioned that your photo is in your avatar let's see here what we got <laughs> what do you think uh six i don't see the photo okay mike you're gonna have to give it to me in some other way all i've got is that blue weird skype headless guy with a guy with no neck anyway uh mike's offering up an eight in the sexual market value. And uh, he is a, a fairly experienced uh, judge of man flesh. So okay. um, cool. if Mike's giving you a solid eight, uh, I'm, uh, I'll back that up, sight, sight unseen. Okay. okay. So uh, you have a good, good sexual market value, I would say, except that um, the, the earning potential remains yeah. somewhat theoretical mm -hmm. uh, at the moment. And uh, I mean, you have some savings, some assets, and so on, which is good. And that indicates, you know, case-selected capacity to defer mm -hmm. gratification, right? Uh, and and so on. Uh, social poise, social uh, confidence, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I would say uh, pretty, slightly above average or so. Yeah. All right. And she is going to meet your friends. And uh, how's that going to go for her? Um, Assuming you have friends, you, know, you listen to this show, so, so <laughs> six of one and zero of the other. But. Right? Um, yeah, that, that would that would go pretty well. Um, most of my close friends are obviously still back and, but um, you know, I, that would probably be a trip we would eventually go on, and uh, they'd be introduced and find that they're pretty similar to me, more or less. Um, the ones here still kind of you know getting to know, but. Um, more or less, yeah, I would say it would go fine. Um, sexual competence? Uh, I'm a virgin. Do you find a clitoris without a spelunking I, kit? I'm blind as a bat. I, I'm a virgin, so. You're a virgin? Yes. Okay. And um, can you step me through that? 
I've never had I mean, sex. it's unusual for 27. <laughs> it's not necessarily a bad thing, obviously, but it's unusual for 27, if you can uh, step me through that. Uh, I mean, I've had um, sexual experiences, if you will, um, but I've never... I have no idea what that means. <laughs> I, I mean, I've, I've kissed. No, I've kissed you can bre- I don't mean to be. I don't mean to be prying or anything. But if you could break that down no. a smidge, uh, I think it would benefit both me and the listeners to know That's what that means. Totally fine. I mean, I've I've kissed girls. I've I've made out with um, a few girls, but I've never I've never had oral sex. Or um, I mean, I've had some experiences with foreplay. I, I guess you could say dry humping, but um, that that's really the extent of. My and bra interest. expertise. I mean, is it is, is it literally a booby trap for you? Like, I mean, because that that's uh, that's always a sort of make or break thing in certain situations. Is you know, can you do the bra without <laughs> chewing through Wolverine style? Nope, never, never attempted that one. Just, I just could never um, bring myself to to do that. Um, even before I uh, more seriously considered my faith when i was about 17 but um before that i just had no i to me it requires so much trust to to kind of do that with someone i just never brought myself to that position and since coming more seriously a christian i you know have (laughs) extreme reservations with that type of activity prior to marriage so and would you um you would want a girl who would also uh, be a virgin? That that be, I assume that that'd be, be case, perf- right? yes, that'd be strongly preferred, but it wouldn't necessarily be a deal breaker. More so, their behavior, um, in more, yeah. I mean, if they were at one time not necessarily trying to live morally or or as a Christian, uh, but thereafter um, ceased that behavior, that would be kind of redeemable in my eyes but um if there was you know no outright change in motivation or behavior after a point like that in their lives then that would kind of be a deal breaker yeah if that makes sense okay okay and now number uh, you you mentioned the filipinos i assume that's within the scope of your yellow fever yeah is uh it, what is the population of of um i guess east asian christians that you have access to <laughs> um right now uh, not 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 much um, in in my immediate vicinity that I know of. I'm still kind of you know getting used to the the big city here, but um, uh, coming to a point now where I'm more comfortable and, and wanted to try to branch out and uh, explore what venues I do have. I've tried a few of the online type things, like not not necessarily Tinder so much, but there's um, I think there's another one that's kind of has a little bit of a different reputation. Although I guess Tinder's kind of changed. Um, coffee meets yeah, bagel. Yeah, I think I think there is a Tinder for virgins, and it's called "Get Away from Tinder." Uh, <laughs> as far as I understand it, it's like have nothing to do with Tinder. Tinder is actually one of the very few apps that I can actually give your finger an STD just by touching it. <laughs> so I just wanted to mention that that challenge. Yeah, um, coffee meets bagel. I've tried eHarmony as well, and um, I mean, there's there's a pool, but typically, um, you know, I would say that most of them are older and just kind of um, a little more desperate seeming than than i quite want at this point um and i would say kind of below my my uh what's older for you um case by case but i would say in general 32 and up right well i mean if you're still trying to figure out your career to to some degree 32 is probably not a very productive age to start dating a woman because she's going to be, you know, 
she her, her fertility is already declining right. and and she needs to sort that stuff out probably a little bit faster than would be comfortable for you that there would be a pressure right i mean right. you can't date a woman in her 30s who want kids uh and unless you can figure it out really quickly you right. know you you can't string them along it's not you know not fair right right touche you got I just I saw I saw a, a picture by the by I saw a picture the other day about how um how Asian women age it, I, I think it was done by <laughs> the, Have you ever seen that? Yeah like with the six little segments to it or, or whatever. And they look fantastic 50, until like they just 50, drop down yeah. into these little bla- black holes down at the bottom of the it's Yoko pretty funny. Ono you know, type. <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> it's like hotty 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 shrunken prune menopause. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's so true, though. That's part of the part of the draw, but right in general. So you're also going to need to find um, an East Asian woman, Japanese woman, or whatever, whose family is is she's obviously not going to be young. She's going to maybe have some some mileage, and her family is going to have to be comfortable with her marrying outside the ethnicity. Right. Uh, hopefully, not necessarily outside the religious context. Right? right. So it's not exactly a needle in the haystack, but you know, finding this is the problem with with you know this is what a lot of people say about women. You know, they have, you've heard this. Um, not all women are like that, or it's called the Nawals, right? The woman who is like the caller we had recently when we talked about uh, why feminists hate men, and uh, a great, a great woman to have a chat with. But a lot of times, the high quality women are kept. Like <laughs> the men don't. Don't let them go, right? right? Because they, you know, if they have any experience, they know what's out there. And it's like, if you've got a high quality woman, you know, the, the analogy, which is not necessarily the nicest in some ways, but, you know, it's it's instructive is like uh, used cars on the market are generally lemons because if you have a used car that's not a lemon, you don't put it on the market. Right. So you are going to um, narrow down quite considerably your standards and you're going to have to have cross-cultural, cross-ethnic compatibilities. And so, you know, my concern is that, you know, if you were 20, but by 27, a lot of the high-quality women have been snapped up, right? right? I mean, if there's this great, attractive, virginal Japanese woman who's, you know, smart, sensible, kind to men, and uninfected by feminine, <laughs> odds are, right, that right, she's been beamed up to some patriarchal harem and, and not, you know, released. Anyway. So I, you know, I would definitely look, nece- I wouldn't necessarily look only within the East Asian community. I mean, you don't, you, you want to look for values, not skin tone, right? Right. And so I would say that it would be in the nice to have. Like everyone's got a physical thing that they want in, in a partner, right? Mm-hmm. But obviously I think the wise approach is to say that's in the nice to have, not the have to have, because it isn't a have to have, right? You want a good woman, you don't want a Japanese woman. In other words, how much, how many points in virtue are you, are you willing to sacrifice to have a Japanese woman? And the answer, philosophically and sensibly, would be zero, right? right? Like if if there's a woman who's you know a nine on a virtue scale, but she's eight and she's Japanese, then you'd go for the nine. At least that would be my advice. And so if you're looking for a woman of rare quality limiting yourself to a particular ethnic subset is going to make it harder 
for you to achieve that. Now, your sexual market value as you age, assuming that your career goes well, is going to go up. All right, women's sexual market value, again, generally peaks early 20s and then can decline. Again, we're talking about just basic reproductive stuff right, mm-hmm. as they age and, and so on, particularly if they've uh, been... If they've had lots of boyfriends or slept around a lot, then their sexual market value to anybody who's got the data, and we've got this in presentations, I think it's in The Truth About Sex, we've got this data that, you know, as we talked about with an earlier caller, a woman who has more partners is much more dangerous, in fact, downright suicidal, uh, seppuku style to drop in a cultural reference, uh, much more dangerous to, to date, to the point where it's just like, I mean, you might as well just have lawyers machine gun you at the wedding. It's just going to be easier, quicker, and and uh, less painful. So right. yeah, it's in it's in the presentation. The truth about sex. People need to check it out. It's it's the most searched for term with regards to sex on the entire internet. Is our presentation. I have convinced myself that's true because I need to get out of bed in the morning. So I wouldn't. You know, focus on the virtue. Now, if you find that, or there are, you know, and I've, I've certainly heard people say that a lot of the uh, East Asian women, you know, being uninfected, relatively uninfected by feminism is, um, you know, there are specific benefits. So if the virtue right. is going to be more concentrated in that ethnicity or in that culture, then I can certainly see looking in there first. But right. um, uh, as your sexual market value goes up, you know, this is the challenge for men is that if you want a younger woman, then that's obviously fine, but there's going to be some age incompatibilities there. And the wider the age gap, to some degree, also the less stable the marriage is. Mm-hmm. So um, I would definitely um, start casting my net wide, looking for the virtuous, uh, make, make a list of the virtuous characteristics that you want. And as I mentioned earlier, the fundamental choice of your wife should be decided by what your future children will best benefit from, because mm-hmm. that's a great way of getting out of your penises way and or getting in your penises way so you don't get dicknapped by somebody who hits your particular biological buttons um and you know the 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 problem with having a particular kink or fetish or preference or whatever it is is that that's where your 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 penis will poke out your eyes like this is where your 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 neofrontal cortex will get beaten into a stupid pulp by your dumb stick so you have to be like the more attractive the woman is in terms of fitting a particular profile for you the more you have to be careful it's like it's a confirmation bias uh that you really have because you know she immediately would have a huge amount of power uh, over you and um men are basically trained to to be dumb when in the proximity of a particular kind of egg configuration that they really like and so your sexual market value, I think, is decent to high. And, you know, you listen to the show, you're a smart guy, you're pursuing virtue and so on. And the fact that you're a virgin uh, is is very positive in many ways as well, because, you know, the particular bond you'll have with a woman mm-hmm. as your first sexual partner being your wife will right. be very strong. And virgins are very stable. This is the female version. I don't know how it is with men. Uh, apparently, Donald Trump was quite the man whore when he was <laughs> younger. But um, again, he's, I think, been a better father than husband, as I think he himself would admit. But um, uh, your um, yeah, your sexual market value, I think, is is good. Um, and um, if you really focus on trying to find the virtues that are going to be the most productive for your future kids, that's going to spill over into having a great wife. And uh, I think that would be my particular approach. And you know, you'll be careful what you wish for. You just might get it if you do find a woman who pushes every conceivable biological button of hot lust in your spine. That's like, yay, and that's also like, ah, at the same time, too, because that's not where you may be making your very best decisions. 
Oh, I think we just uh, lost him. But that was pretty much the end of my speech anyway. So uh, I just wanted to say, of course, thank you, everyone, so, 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 so much for uh, um, inviting me into your brains, into your hearts. Oh, I'm just finishing up, Mike. Uh, that was the end of my speech anyway. So, oh, lost him again. So, um, yeah, thanks, uh, everyone, so much for allowing us to have and share, to ha not just have, but to share these conversations. It's uh, very meaningful for the world. You are laying down your fossils of experience for future archaeologists to pour over forever. And I really appreciate having that opportunity to discuss these issues with you. Uh, so have yourselves a wonderful week. Please, please, please remember, 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 not only the 5th of November and the Ides of March, but freedomainradio.com slash donate to uh, help us out uh, with the show sign up for a subscription um, sign up for a donation um, it's hugely appreciated we do take bitcoins and other forms of digital currency and um, you don't have to have a paypal account you can just use your bank card or your visa it's very it's encrypted it's secure uh, you don't have to sign up for anything uh, it's hugely appreciated if you could do a subscription even better and of course if you've got shopping fdrurl.com slash amazon to help us out with that Thank you, everyone, so, so much for a wonderfully uh, exciting conversation, a wonderfully exciting life uh, in these conversations. Have yourselves a great, great week. We'll talk, we'll talk to you soon.